Hey everyone, this is Wayne and this is the Greenfield Podcast. And our guest today is economics blogger Noah Smith, one of the smartest guys on Twitter, someone I've, I've known for many years. I actually met him, just found out on this podcast. I met him on the street in San Francisco when I was doing vegan outreach and didn't even realize he was a fellow econ, or I should say, I'm a former econ, he's a current econ, because he's a columnist for Bloomberg. He has a blog on Substack that is just one of the smartest blogs you're, you're, you'll see on Twitter or anywhere. And, and Noah's going to share with us a little about how this war in Ukraine is going to affect us here at home, and in particular, how it's going to affect something that hasn't been written enough about, which is food prices. Turns out that Russia and Ukraine uh, comprise about 25% of all the wheat exports in the world, and wheat prices have gone up dramatically, 30, 40, 50% in just the last few weeks. That is eventually going to hurt us here at home, and Noah's going to tell us about why that's going to happen, what we can do to make sure, especially the folks who are most vulnerable in this country and around the world, aren't unduly affected by this price shock. But Noah also has just a lot of interesting insights into activism and social change. And I don't agree with all of them, for the record. But this is a guy who's very very smart. He's very historically grounded and looks very carefully at data. And I think his opinion on activism is something that all of us should pay attention to. So without further ado, here's Noah Smith. Noah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. It's been a while since we last chatted, I think a few years. And uh, you write about some of the most important things in the world, war and peace, the economy, food prices, which we'll talk about. But there's one thing I'm seeing on your Twitter that I think is so important and has been completely neglected by the media that I have to ask you about to start this podcast. And this is uh, a tweet you made on March 19th. No cardboard is safe from this monster. <laughs> so I, I just want to say, this: I, for those of you who can't see what, what I'm seeing, which is all of you, this bunny is absolutely adorable. And one of the reasons I really like bunny is you have such a weird contrast in interests. And one of the things you're really interested in is bunnies. So um, to kick this off on something a little lighter, um, tell us about these bunnies. Where did you get them and how did you become interested in bunnies? Well, you know, growing up, I had dogs, cats, hamsters, fish, um, never had a rabbit. And, you know, I was under two mistaken impressions about rabbits. The first is that rabbits uh, are not litter trainable, that they poop all over the floor. Yeah. Indeed, there are people who do not train, litter train their rabbits and who let them poop all over the floor. And since rabbit poop is pretty dry and odorless, they tolerate this. But I do not. I litter train my rabbits, and I found out that rabbits are easily litter trainable. Huh. It's easier to litter train them than cats. You huh. just put the litter box next to a hay feeder, and they will litter train themselves within like a day. And it's just as clean as a cat. Just as clean as a cat, yeah. It's amazing. And then so and and doesn't barf all over like a cat. So why don't more people have rabbits? Well, because they don't know that. <laughs> it's just not well publicized. And also, you know, rabbits are rabbits are affectionate, but people yeah. don't know that either. You know, it's um Yeah. Uh yeah, people just are unaware. If I think the one fact that if people knew that rabbits were easy to litter train, yeah, that would massively increase the amount of rabbits as pets. Yeah. And people think rabbits should be kept in like a cage or something like that. No, I mean, it's just like a, it's a cat. Yeah, it's, yeah. A rabbit is like a, a clumsy vegan cat. Yeah. And, you know, they, they don't make sound uh, much. You know, they, they, they can't really make vocal sounds, which I think I actually don't like that. I wish that they had some sort of voice, but then I like to hear cats meow and dogs bark. Sure. But a lot of people are like, "Why shut up. Why aren't you quiet? And, you know, those people might like a rabbit because the rabbit is just very quiet. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that they do is they stomp when there's, they're trying to like warn you of danger. You know, you're the only economist I know who has an interest in rabbits. Well, there's some others. <laughs> there, are there other economists? Yeah. How, is that, 
was that something that happened when you were in grad school? Was it something that happened after you started teaching? I, I don't so, even know so where So it the... started with, um, with my friend Jenny. Uh, who's my, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, my friend from, from grad school. Uh, Jenny Lynn, she's an economist. Um, uh, now she's in the private sector. She works for Netflix. Hmm, cool. and then, uh, but, but she was a prof before as well. Um, and she, oh, also a, a former Brad DeLong uh, advisee at Berkeley. Ah, cool. And so she got this rabbit. And, uh, and Brad was, DeLong is a University of California Berkeley economics professor who you just started a podcast with, right? A couple yes. months ago? Yeah. Great guy. Actually, his blog, in, along with Paul Krugman's, was one of the blogs that really influenced me in becoming more interested in economics. Same. And that's, that's why I, he's an amazing writer. That's why I went to grad school and became an economics blogger, was so I could be like Brad DeLong. Wow, cool. And so, um, what was I saying? Uh, Jenny was. Oh yeah, that's right. She, you to she got this rabbit, and he was really cute, and he was you know litter trained, and he was like very affectionate, and you know just a cute little guy. And um, his name is Gunter, and uh, he's pretty old now. He's still alive. Wow. And um, rabbits live about I'd say ten to twelve years, although some live longer. Sure. But so then, about the age span of a cat. Uh, less There's than a cat. Less a little bit less than a cat. Yeah. Okay. My my cats live to be over twenty. Wow. Typically, so. Yeah, they, they lived a while, but yeah. um, but yeah. So then she uh, she got this rabbit, and I thought this rabbit's great. Mm -hmm. And then um, so I went, to, you know, I was I was bored and had nothing to do, mm -hmm. and so I went to the animal shelter to the the pound, uh, um, animal care and control in San Francisco, and I volunteered there for like about a year, year and a half, to take care of rabbits, Aww. and uh, in the in the small animal thing, and and there was this. Uh, this group of rabbits that got rescued uh, from an illegal meat breeder. Mm. Some guy trying to like breed rabbits for meat in his garage. It was never going to work. You can't do that. It's also illegal. He got arrested. Mm. Um, and the rabbits got rescued. There were about 40 of them. They were all white rabbits. And white mm. rabbits uh, you know, with pink eyes are very, very difficult to adopt out because people are like, oh, no, vampire yeah. eyes. Sure. I think it's cute. You know, no, I it is. They're cute. It's and so mean. So, yeah, and so I thought the rabbits were quite cute, and they said, well, you should take one home, mm -hmm. and you should adopt a rabbit. I was like, okay, I could adopt a rabbit. And so there was this one rabbit that uh, was the fattest rabbit who loved to eat and also, you know, was pretty, uh, <laughs> she, was, she was pretty chill. She was a very chill rabbit. So I decided to take her home. Uh, that was Cinnamon. That's my first rabbit. Uh -huh. And I took her home and, uh, you know, where she proceeded to chill out and eat a lot at my house. And then... But so this is an adoption or were you fostering her initially? Adoption. Adoption. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just... Um, actually, I got, I got very fixated on, on Cinnamon the rabbit because I would like, you know, sit around thinking about like Cinnamon trapped in a, in a cage. I would feel bad about that, you know, at home. Uh -huh. I would just kind of like... I don't know. I mean, there were like you know, dozens of rabbits trapped in cages. And, yeah. But I was like, but I want, I want that one. And so then, like, I, I immediately knew which rabbit I wanted. And so, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I adopted her and then she was, you know, pretty happy, but then I feel like kind of lonely um, for like the first year and a half that I had her. So I said, okay, we need to get you a companion. Mm -hmm. So I went to Save a Bunny, which is this really great rabbit rescue up in Marin. Yeah. And we found her a companion, which turned out to be her long lost brother. Yeah, yeah, and so her wow. her brother Giggles uh, is now her companion. So long lost brother meaning not actually biological. Or biological, actually, biological, biological half half brother. Yeah. Really? Yeah. How'd you even figure that out? I mean, that seems oh. like such an amazing coincidence. Well, they're the same age, and she has half of the coloring. Okay. Of him. But did she come from the same? 
same guy, mom. same, same mom, different dad. Same mom, different dad. But yeah, there was were, the same were, guy were, who had been hoarding these rabbits, and one of the bunnies just happened to go to save a bunny. Uh, yes, that's right. Okay, some wow. some went to animal care and control, and then some went to save a bunny. Yeah. It was just whoever had capacity. Yeah, I guess so, it's not that surprising because a lot of these operations, even small scale operations, have hundreds of rabbits because they reproduce so quickly. That's so right. Well. <laughs> The colloquial I mean, metaphor of reproducing, like having babies like bunnies, is actually kind of true from what I understand. It really is. It really is. Really is. So you should, always, you should always spay your rabbits. Yeah. The world does not need more, more extra rabbits. rabbits huh? yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, they have a very short gestation period and pretty large litters. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so then we found Giggles, and they, uh, they bonded. His, his name is, is Constable Giggles, actually. Constable Giggles. Constable Giggles. <laughs> Um, he's a, uh, he's sort of a, and from what I understand, that's not a guarantee that two rabbits will bond. That was no, 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 a little bit right. of an adventure to oh, yeah. try and get these two bunnies to get along. Cause I mean, we all think of bunnies as incredibly cute and they are, they're not dangerous to human beings, but in my experience, they can be vicious to each other. They will attack and claw and that's bite. Right. They're very territorial. <laughs> yeah. You know towards what they're bunnies towards other bunnies. Towards and other you know what, you know what they're very like, not towards humans, <laughs> um, but towards other bunnies. Um, you know what they're very much like is horses. Huh? I've taken care of horses as a kid, and um, really, yeah. And you grew up in Texas. I'm from Texas. Okay, yeah. that makes more sense because I know you're Jewish. That wouldn't make any sense, but the Texas part makes sense that you had horses. Well, there's there's horse riding Jews, Jewish, horse Jewish riding cavalry, Jews? Jewish cavalry. <laughs> I didn't um, know about this. I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> um, we should look this up. Find out there, if there probably is a Jewish is. cavalry like, out there somewhere. There probably was like my, my ancestors are from Lithuania. They probably had cavalry in Lithuania. I feel like the Jews were like a badass warrior tribe back in 0 AD, you know, 100 BC before Christ. And then yeah. fast forward to today, well, the Israelis are very considered very, you know, Warlike. dangerous and yeah. powerful warriors. But there was a period of like 2,000 years between when people learned to use horses in fight. And I don't remember... The Jews doing too much of that. <laughs> Maybe I'm just missing a huge part of Jewish history. Oh, I mean, but like I don't remember any Jewish cavalry from my world history class. There were some. There, some. Um, there was actually one, um, like a Central Asian tribe, sort of in Russia, modern day Russia, huh. that tried to convert everyone to Judaism. They're like, well, we need a religion, so let's try Judaism. Wow. And so then those were these guys, like Mongols? No, those those they were more like um, more like what we'd now call Tatars. Mm. who got okay. semi-Mongolized when sure. Genghis Khan came through and conquered yeah. everybody. So kind of combination Eastern European, right. Mongol. Now they're just yeah. mixed into the general yeah. Russian, yeah. Russian-ness. Mm-hmm. But um, that was a while ago. Huh. And they, they, were, they were all cavalry. Uh, no, I think they've just been sort of rolled into rolled like into Russia. Okay. Yeah. Or killed, or I don't even know what happened to them. Yeah. Like, it's hard to tell because on, in, you know, when you have steppe yeah. uh, climates and you have these horse people and steppes, and migratory horse people, mm-hmm. the ethnicities are extremely fluid. Yeah. And I mean, Mongolian is actually a made-up ethnicity. Sorry, sorry, Mongolians. Um, but Genghis Khan, it was Genghis Khan's tribe. It was his small yeah. tribe. And he was, you know, when he made his empire, he said, you are all Mongolians now. Oh, I declare yeah. this. And, and so, he did a good job of that himself with all the, what, 500,000 children he had? Well, yes. It's but like I, some ridiculous percentage of the entire planet Earth has some ancestry linked back to Geng- Genghis Khan, I think, right? Right. It's so like actually... a couple percentage points of the entire human population. Right. But it turns out that that's just because it was a very long time ago. Yeah, and it turns out that anybody he, he probably is only only slightly more has only slightly more kids than like the average person. Mongol warrior. Really? Wow. Yeah. It turns out that this is actually just a statistical <laughs> sort of canard. Sure. It's fun to imagine Genghis Khan fertilizing the entire world, but actually he spent a lot of his time doing politics. Yeah. He did have and one, killing people. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, the funny allegory. So I, I've, I've read, you know, a million books about Genghis Khan and the, and the Mongol empire, huh. so a huge Mongol history buff. Um, uh, but then but the, my favorite anecdote, so, so he did have multiple wives. He was polygamous. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, your first wife would be considerably older than you. And I don't remember how many years, uh, his first wife, Borto was older than him. Hmm. Uh, he did have to rescue her when she got kidnapped, and that's why he became a conqueror. He didn't really want to be a conqueror, but then they kidnapped his wife. Yeah. So it's kind of a Mel Gibson movie where this guy is like, just you know, I want to be a farmer, and then like someone kidnaps his wife, and he like hulks out and like conquers the world. It's like it's very he much just took it a little too far after he got his wife back. Right, gonna, exactly. I'm just gonna keep on killing. Yeah, so I, I must bring order to the world. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> fuck this whole world. And so like it's very much a Mel Gibson movie. And if Mel Gibson still made movies, he should have made one about <laughs> Genghis Khan because. It's it so perfectly fits his like like the patriot brave heart oh, no, every he movie can't do that apocalypto you'd have to find some mongolian person to pretend you know to be genghis khan oh sure that's not allowed anymore right right no, no i mean he's <laughs> he's also pretty old um he um anyway so yeah um so yeah genghis khan had to rescue his first wife from the clutches of the um of the uh Merkits. and then um and, and wiped them all out, of course. Yeah, he genocided well, them. That's kind of what you do when you're yeah, a conqueror. He's, he's in a bad mood. He woke up in a poopy mood, as yeah, you say. And everybody and so the, But yes, he had multiple wives you know, later in life. And um, one of his wives would uh, ride into battle with him and became like a Mongol field commander. Hmm. So she's pretty tough. And the Mongols... Was that common in the Mongolian army? No. Okay. So it was, it was not, not yeah. common to have women go fight, but it was common to have women run all the administration of the empire, sure. run all domestic policy and economics and everything yeah. back home while the men went off and fight, fought, which is what you also saw with Vikings. Hmm. You did see some female Vikings. In fact, our famous, like, um, you know, the famous horned helmet comes from a ceremonial burial helmet of a woman Viking. Wow. And so that's like the... Um, so there were there were lady Vikings, of course, but then also women were running all the uh, all the like administration, business, and and economics and everything back home, politics, mm. and that was the same with the Mongols. And so you get these very like these much more gender equal societies now have this legacy of women running shit while men went off and raided. Wow! And so it's really interesting. And so um, in fact, Mon- Mongol society was much more gender equal than Chinese society, certainly in the Sung Dynasty, and. Um, and then the, certainly more than Islamic society, and so then, sure. but it's interesting because when the Mongols ruled China, they, um, you know, they they ended a lot of Sung sort of like traditional gender role enforcement, hmm. and because the Sung was they like had to basically. Well, I mean, because we're, we're the Mongols and we do things our way, our way, yeah, and like. But also, if all the men are gone, raiding, I mean, you have to give women some authority and power. Right. I mean, of course, in China, there were, right. I mean, yeah. this was this was China, so people weren't raiding. Okay. And, you know, people were like farming mostly. But then they they made laws saying like women can do this and that and blah blah. And the and the yeah. Sung people got mad. They got really mad, or the the Chinese people of the former Sung, mm-hmm. now in the Yuan Dynasty, got mad um, because you know this was against traditional culture. So it was partially a desire to restore traditional culture. It was. Yeah social conservatism that was one of the things that motivated the rebellion that kicked out the mongols about 150 years later hmm. and resulted in the establishment of the ming dynasty yeah and and sort of like restore traditional values so so it was sort of a conservative revolution it was like i imagine like you know ronald reagan <laughs> type of leading the, the charge in the you know for the ming dynasty <laughs> and so anyway that happened um 
One it's interesting because yeah, I yeah. think it's just an example of how, I think from the popular conception of the Mongol horde, even the idea that it's a horde, it's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of universally deemed an evil thing. Right. The, the word horde means bureaucracy. Very rapacious. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you don't realize, I mean, it, like most things in the world, it's, it's, it's not that black and white. There are nuances and there are good things that come from even some terrible crises in, in world history that, that we should be able to acknowledge. But absolutely. This I mean, is not kind of where the world is right there now, are pro There are pro-Jingus people like Jack Weatherford who hmm. think that he knocked over sort of the rotten, decaying medieval world and allowed mm-hmm. the early modern world to develop. Yeah. And that was sort of like the pivot of history. Yeah, It was yeah. just Jingus creating chaos. Yeah. This conversation is very representative of why I wanted to have this on the po- this podcast and also why I asked you about the bunnies first because for those of you who don't know, and you know, you're going to hear the intro to this podcast, so you will know this, but Noah is most known as an economics writer. But one of the really cool things about the media nowadays is I think people are able to express more dimensions to their curiosity than they, they were, say, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And, and I love the fact that you're an economics blogger, you're a columnist at Bloomberg, you tweet about bunnies, and you just had a long discussion with me about Genghis Khan. And that says something about the way the media is evolving. Um, I think so. I don't know if it's all good, but it's, it's certainly interesting. And, and I do want to get to the question that... that originally caused me to ask you to come on this podcast, which is, um, you want a very scary place in world history right now. Mm-hmm. I just had Steve Fish, a Cal professor who studied Ukraine and Russia for the last 30 years of his life, was there in the USSR in 1985 when things were crumbling. And he, mm-hmm. he thinks this is a more scary moment than any point in his lifetime, um, even seeing the Berlin Wall fall and the Cold War. And uh, we've talked a lot of, about a lot of the aspects of this in the media. I mean, you're hearing about gas prices going up. Obviously, the threat of World War III is terrifying. But one thing people haven't talked too much about, until you, you're, you were actually the first person I saw who wrote about this, was how this is going to affect food. So just tell us a little bit about kind of the piece you wrote about how this, this conflict could affect food prices, not just in Eastern Europe and in Europe, but around the world. Right. So... Uh, Russia and Ukraine are both really big food exporters. Um, and the thing that they export the most of is wheat. Mm-hmm. Although they export other food too, but I think wheat is, is sort of the biggie. And wheat is a stable grain, which means that you make bread out of it. And so, you know, when you, when you read about um, historic riots in France or modern riots in Egypt, it's bread riots. Mm-hmm. People are rioting over the price of bread. That is wheat. And so suddenly the biggest, you know, Two of the biggest wheat exporters are getting kind of knocked out. Ukraine because of war uh, being invaded. Um, Russia because it is suffering from sanctions. And mm-hmm. in order to sell you know, wheat abroad, you need to contract with, with foreign banks. And that's very difficult to do now that we cut them out of sort of the entire banking system. And mm-hmm. they don't really have a good way to sell their wheat. Um, and so anyway, yeah. So wheat prices are going way up. And um, I don't know if actually they've... they've re- lowered more in the last few days. I haven't checked in the last few days. But mm-hmm. so um that you know, it's pretty straightforward that this is gonna make a lot of people hungry. Yeah, and the percentages were shockingly high. I didn't realize this until I read your blog, but twenty for five percent of all the wheat exports in the world are coming from the Ukraine and Russia. Twenty five percent. Right. And so food is not like oil 
you know, you can drive less, you can do a lot of stuff. You can't eat less food. <laughs> what you can do is eat different food. Yeah, you can so, eat different so food. So a lot of people are going to switch from wheat to rice and corn, um, and, you know, or meat or other things. Meat is more expensive. But, sure. um, but rice and corn certainly are the main substitutes for wheat. Those are our, those are our big staple grains, uh, wheat, rice, and corn. Uh, I don't remember which of those is, is responsible for the most calories. I think wheat, hmm. um, but I could be wrong. Um, but those are the, those are the big three in terms of grains. And so now, you know, corn and, and rice prices are going to shoot up because those are substitutes for wheat. And the people who were eating wheat, eating bread, would now eat rice and corn things. Yeah. Um, so even if this doesn't yeah. directly affect the supply of wheat and grain, it's going to increase the price because of, of the supply shock from right will we'll decrease the and supply it's going to make it harder for everybody including people who primarily eat rice to yes. get the food they need just to survive exactly yeah exactly right can, can you explain further about why you know the, the banking system and, and the sanctions are going to cause I mean and I, I don't even right. think this is necessarily a critique of the sanctions because you're supportive of them right you think it's the right yeah, thing to do yeah, you yeah. just think that we have to do something so, about this although before I, it hits the pocketbooks of, of poor people in America or even maybe I, more I dangerously sanctions, right. poor people in Egypt you know where I think your blog says I think it's like 10% of all the wheat exports or imports I should say in the world go to one country Egypt I mean what are they going to do if there's right. no wheat uh, Egypt is but, in trouble. But explain why the sanctions are, would cause, because, I mean, the wheat's still being grown. I mean, why? Not as much can as they, you can, Why can't they just use it crypto? To, to, or why can't we make an exception for exports of wheat? And why haven't we made All right. an ex exception for exports of wheat? Suppose I'm a Russian wheat grower, sure. and I want to sell my wheat overseas. Mm -hmm. How do I do it? Well, uh, other people, you know, what I want is rubles, because rubles are the... Are the currency in which I buy food for myself and buy pay rent and do all the other things in Russia that I need to do, I use rubles, right? So I need to get rubles from these importers. And they don't have rubles. People in Egypt aren't walking around with a bunch of rubles. So what do they do? How does an Egyptian buy Russian wheat? Well, the Egyptian goes to an Egyptian bank and says, I what is the Egyptian currency? I forgot even what it's called. I don't remember. Um, so then, actually, that's a that's a good question. Can you can you look up Google the Egyptian it right now as you keep talking? Yeah, Egyptian currency. Yeah, what is that? Egyptian pound. Okay, Egyptian pound. Mm -hmm. So I, I have I have pounds, and then I want to get rubles. And so I'm Egyptian. I go to the bank. I say here's some pounds. Um, I'm like a grocery store or something, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, here's some pounds, and uh, and um, you know, give me some give me some rubles. And then the the bank does that. And then, uh, or yeah, then I have some rubles and I can pay the rubles to the Egyptian export. It's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's essentially what happens. Sure. You go through banks. We've just cut Russia out of the banking, banking system, system and we've yeah. made it impossible for Russian banks to send messages securely. Hmm. So, um, you know, now when... And that's that SWIFT thing that everyone's been talking about. Exactly. Right? That's right. just it's a secure messaging system. system. Yep. If you don't, I mean, you can still get a message from a Russian bank. A Russian bank can send you a message on Signal or whatever, but then that can be pretty easily spoofed. And then, sure. you know, it's like, new phone, who dis? Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Um, <laughs> new phone, who dis? Right. And then... <laughs> and then uh, so SWIFT is basically a verification system to ensure the transaction is actually a legitimate transaction. You're that's right. You get the money that has been promised to you. And yes. It gives everybody confidence that the deal is what it, we're saying it's going to be. Exactly right. It's just strange to me that there, that this would actually prove to be such an insurmountable obstacle. Because, I mean, we live in a world of cryptocurrency, right? And I know there's... Cryptocurrency doesn't have a lot of liquidity. It doesn't have a lot like, of liquidity. Yeah. If I want to make a... You can't even buy drugs in Bitcoin anymore. You have yeah. to use Zcash or Monero. Not yeah. that I would do that. <laughs> um, 
Sorry, did I just tell the audience how to buy drugs? Well, <laughs> you could also just do a five-second Google how to buy drugs. <laughs> but, you, know, you need to get this from Noah. You can get it from Google. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do drugs. Um, so, <laughs> Weren't we just talking about how wonderful psilocybin is, Noah? Psilocybin's good. Let's, let's be real. <laughs> don't, don't, do, like, don't do heroin. Don't we'll do talk heroin. about that later. But con- yeah. so, so continue. Why, um, why, why is cryptocurrency? I mean, I guess the other thing is why, why can't they just accept... Egyptian pounds for now and say I'll exchange it at some point in the future. Cryptocurrency maybe, is not liquid enough. So, so yeah. for example, suppose the Russian person says, well, I have some Bitcoin. I'll pay you in Bitcoin. Yeah. And the Egyptian person is like, well, what am I going to do with all this Bitcoin? I have to exchange mm-hmm. it for dollars. Yeah. You, can't you can't find that. that many people who are willing to, because mm-hmm. people, when people have dollars and then buy Bitcoin, what they're really doing is they're investing. Yeah. yeah. Bitcoin is an investment property, not a currency. Yeah. And so people, you have to find people with dollars willing to get into Bitcoin mm-hmm. just to trade that Bitcoin or pounds, Egyptian yeah. pounds, right? You have to find Egyptian people who are willing to like buy into the Bitcoin system and then become crypto people yeah. just to unload your, your red. It's not worth it. And so and that's you can't why. do this at the scale of hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Exactly. Of you can't just, do it. It doesn't There's work. The, yeah, scale, the scale isn't there. Yeah. And this is this, a dumb question though. So I get the cryptocurrency. Why can't they just accept Egyptian pounds for now and say, I'll convert it to rubles later and let's still make the deal? Oh, is there a good explanation for that? That doesn't. I mean, well, then what can they do with the Egyptian pounds? They can't just use selling it. them for now, and they can't use it in their home country. Yeah, that's true. But so more it's, it's bo- a liquidity problem for them. But the same, more importantly, yeah. then then how does the how does the grocer, you know, if it's hard for a bank to do business with a Russian bank, mm-hmm. how can a grocer do business with a Russian bank? Yeah, it's like it's even harder for them. Yeah, they're not set up to do it. They're not used to doing it. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Um, it's like a new thing. And so yes, you're having some. Yeah, and it's not like they're going to ship over just briefcases full of Egyptian pounds to some bank yeah, in you Russia. Don't, you, don't have the, you don't have logistical capacity. You don't have security to protect your briefcases if they're being shipped to Russia. It's like, how do you even do that? So, Most money is digital. Yeah. No. Like the amount of money that's in like physical cash yeah. is pretty small. Yeah. And so you can, you can just withdraw tons of it, but eventually they'll stop you. They'll be like, too much cash. Yeah. You're taking too much cash. And so it's just a giant pain in the ass. And so it's going to be very difficult. And knowing this, the Russian growers are going to grow less wheat. Mm-hmm. They're going to grow, and they're also going to grow stuff for Russia because remember, Russia imports food as well. Yeah, and so that Russia's cut off from imports of food because it can't get the foreign currency required to buy the food imports. Uh. So Russia will have to grow food for itself, and so the wheat that it would have sold to Egypt, it's now giving to Russians mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or selling to Russians. Yeah. So give us give us your expectation of how much this is going to increase food prices. Obviously, not hold you to this because it's very complex with a lot I of. Oh, I don't. I don't know numbers. Well, um, all it, it's, it's order, be, order of magnitude, do you think it's going to be like a 5% increase in food as a result of this No, more, war? Than, more than that. Okay. Um, what would you guess? If you had to just put one number on it. Well, I don't know. Whatever, whatever the prices have increased so far, mm-hmm. that's my estimate for how much they will. So look up wheat price right now. Wheat prices. Let's look it up. I want to say the other thing that's, that's strange to me about the lack of discussion about the food prices mm-hmm. is I obviously this entire world has gone through you know, cataclysmic crisis of the last two and a half years, two years because of COVID-19. But I feel like the moment it really hit for most of us was when we went to the grocery store and all the aisles were empty. Like, I, I don't know if right. you saw like all That's the images right. on Twitter, on Facebook, those images were going viral. And that was the moment when everyone was getting scared. Cause this is even before. I mean, I also go to the grocery store. For sure. Even just going individually, but just seeing how many other people were concerned about this. I felt like, Right. That was the moment where the entire country felt like, okay, this is really real. We've got to be very serious about Empty this. Empty grocery thing. store shelves are sort of the iconic 
panic moment for the economy. Yeah. Because one thing you, sh- you, one thing you want to always be able to do in the economy is go buy food. Food, yeah. And this is part of what brought the USSR down. You know, when Steve Fish was talking about his experiences in the 1980s, one of the reasons really Gorbachev felt that he had to move forward with restructuring and glasnost and all those things and eventually bring down the Berlin walls because people were going to grocery stores and there wasn't enough food. Right. You know, there were all these lines. Right. So and I'm looking was, at wheat. And that was because of a, of a balance of payments crisis. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at wheat prices. I don't even know what the, this, it looks like it's US dollars per bushel. Yeah. February 21st, it was. 21st, it was $792. Yep. And on March 7th, it was 813. 813. So, so it's, it's like, like 100, like, okay, like 15% increase. Mm-hmm. Let's say then I predict a. I'm sorry, 800, 849. So it went okay. from the low of, you know, like 790, 800, 800. So, so all right. So let's say, let's say it increases. Let's say we've, we're halfway there. Yeah. So 30% increase in the price of wheat. Of wheat. That's substantial. That's very substantial. Um, for American poor people, you know, poor people spend up to 40% of their money on food for the lowest quintile um, or lowest uh, decile, I mean, <clears throat> of, the, of income. And so we're ta- poor people spend a lot of, on food. They're living from hand to mouth, you know, literally. Yeah. And so that um, we're, we are going to need to pump up SNAP a lot. And SNAP is? SNAP is food stamps. Food stamps, okay. Uh, we're going to need to... I mean, we should have done that anyway. Yeah. Like, there's no reason not to buy people, like, as much food as they want. I guess as long as, you know, we make some effort to ensure it's nutritious food. Yeah. But then, you know, we also have things to distribute food directly, like soup kitchens and whatnot, which do a lot more than soup, by the way. Yeah. Um, And so we have food distribution efforts, you know, in urban areas, in poor areas. Yeah. And we also have SNAP, and it's very effective at allaying hunger. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. When people talk about food problems in america they talk about food insecurity people say i don't know where you know my next meal is going to come from it's a pretty ambiguous statement actually and and those people have irregular lives um and ultimately they're they're getting the calories they need we Mm -hmm. don't see like a lot of underweight birth babies which are a sign of, of malnutrition maternal malnutrition in america so people do have food insecurity, but that's really more of a function of overall economic insecurity. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't say specific to food. We do a good job of getting everyone food in this country. Yeah, We do a very good job, actually. And if you look at SNAP spending over the last you know, 30 years, it's really increased by a ton. It increased a ton under George W. Bush. Hmm. And uh, so I... I one, That's interesting. I one thing that. I do to rebel against my generation and be a punk is talk about good things that George W. Bush actually did. Um, one, one really good thing he did was reduce homelessness a lot by uh, shifting to a housing first homeless strategy Absolutely. instead yeah. of sort of requiring people to get off drugs before we give you housing. Yeah. Um, and so that was really effective and he pumped up the amount of money and homelessness went down by, I think, 15% yeah. just in his second term alone. Um, he also increased SNAP a lot and Obama continued that. Um, hmm. Uh, during the during the Great Recession, yeah. But even even in relatively good times, George W. Bush, when when hunger was not like you know there's nothing driving like hunger, mm-hmm. George W. Bush did increase SNAP spending a heck of a lot. Yeah, and I think that's going to be important. I mean, I I didn't actually realize my, myself, but you have this great chart in your blog. It's a it's a blog called the Ukraine War and the Price of Bread. By the way, you should all check it out on Noah's Substack. But for people making less than twenty thousand a year, food is forty percent. That's they're right. spending 40 percent. Right. so if 
something that's 40% of your spending goes up in cost by 30%, and it's not going to go up by 30%. It's just the price of wheat. Although maybe it will. I mean, because if right. wheat continues to go up, maybe all food prices will go up by 30% that's, that's, in the next year or two. That's That'd 12%. be terrifying. That's twelve. That's a 12% increase in your cost of living. Absolutely. And this is, yeah. people are already making almost nothing, you know, right. to, to be hit with a 30% increase in prices for right. something you're spending 40% of your income on, and you can't avoid it. You know, it's not like you can exactly. avoid this. So I think the point the you're Bloomberg, trying to make is Bloomberg even if these people- ridiculous article yesterday saying like, you should eat lentils instead of meat or something <laughs> like that. It's like, oh my God. Well, well no, we're not, that, that was stupid. We're not, we're not there yet. So I want to, but I want to ask that, you that argument. War. Why isn't part that's of the solution? Time. I mean, so you, you, you offer some, some solutions to this problem, including increasing SNAP. Is part of the solution encouraging people to eat less meat? Because a lot of this- a lot of this grain is being basically fed to animals, right? And we don't have to encourage people. What happened is what happens is the price. They will just inevitably do that. They will because yeah, they will. Mm -hmm. um, what we there, there's no greater encouragement than a price tag. Yeah. Um, people will eat less meat. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you if you think you know if you don't like meat, if you think that that's bad, as I do. Yeah. As you do. Um, although you act on it much more than I do because <laughs> I do eat meat. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, then, then you should be happy about this. Sure. Uh, but, but should there be a bigger campaign around that? I mean, uh, do, would you support something like that? Maybe this, but, is a, okay. this is a moment for us to say, Hey, if food prices are going to go up, we can't feed maybe, all this grain maybe there, to animals. There we should be really feeding it to human beings, which means all of us cut back a little on this factory farm meat. But there won't be, there won't be a giant campaign like that sure. for one simple reason. People will just elect Republicans. Mm. And then, you know, because it's yeah. like Democrats, the, the old line is, you know, Democrats want you to live in a, away. live in a, uh, is it live in a pod and eat the bugs? Yeah. That's the line, right? It's, they want you to have lower standard of living to live in a small house with no car or only a small car yeah. to accept a diminished standard of living um, and to, and to eat bugs. And yeah. that's the, the kick, that's the line against Democrats. And, you know, the idea is, it, that was a incredibly hard sell in the 70s mm -hmm. when rich people were getting poorer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is an impossible sell now when rich people are still getting richer. Yeah. You cannot have the country tighten their belts when people are just minting, mm -hmm. you know, billions of dollars of wealth all the time. It's just they won't accept it. They'll get mad and they'll vote. I don't know. I'm not sure if they'll vote for Donald Trump again, but they'll vote for someone stupid and definitely a Republican. Um, and the question is, do you want that? And what will a Republican do? Mm -hmm. And so you could just trace out in your mind what the Republican will do. Um, they'll, you know, of course, open up all federal lands for oil drilling, mm -hmm. <laughs> Native American burial grounds. Ah! Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, and then they'll, they'll um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll deliver a whole bunch of stealth subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, hurting climate change. Um, I'm not sure they'll necessarily do anything about meat other than like, maybe some sort of stealth subsidies to yeah. like meat companies like Tyson or whatever. And, and so that's, what's going to happen. Yeah. If you just tell people we'll have a national campaign of belt tightening, even if, you know, the, the Elon Musk's of the world, the super rich of the world, were not minting bazillions of dollars every day mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. due to low capital costs. Yeah. Even if that wasn't happening, people would still get mad as they got mad in the seventies. They kicked out Jimmy Carter. They, mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. brought in Ronald Reagan and we got, you know, what you know is the neoliberal era and what your listeners, who probably lean extremely strongly to the left, know as that neoliberal era happened in part because of this angry reaction in the 70s to the inflation yeah. of the 70s. You tell people, you 
you know, Jimmy Carter was like, put on a sweater. He wore a sweater. Yeah. Right? Take cold showers. Yeah. That's what I remember about him. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I wasn't alive. <laughs> but yes. I, was, I, I should say, I wasn't alive then. That's just what I remember from the history okay. book. Okay. Oh, got, got, got it. Got it. I'm not that old. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I'm not that old. <laughs> We're old, but not that old. Yeah. So then, um, yeah. And so, so that was disastrous. Don't you think there's a positive way Biden of framing that message, that. though, of, of saying, like, we need to transform our food system in the same way? There you know, is, I think Tesla not, has done a good job with this with electricity, yeah. right? It's it's not belt tightening. You can't drive your car anymore. It's like you're going to get an awesome car. Here's and I, an I awesome feel like car. there's an, and they are awesome cars. I drove a Tesla for the first time They're really like, a couple weeks ago, and it is kind of a transformative experience. It's unbelievable it's how fast car, these cars yeah. are. They're just so electric, aesthetically an electric beautiful. Motor too. has faster has higher torque. Yeah, it's, it's amazing than a gas motor because it, just the way it's shaped. It's the, the both the acceleration, the smoothness of it. It's just a better experience. And when we're living in era, we live in the Bay Area, and every single McDonald's, including McDonald's that's right outside this building, has now has a McPlant in it. Which is, I mean, I actually haven't had it yet, but What's I've that? had a Beyond Burger. You haven't heard about the McPlant? No, I don't eat McDonald's. <laughs> so it's been all over the media, at least in the food space. Which it's a veggie burger at McDonald's. It's a veggie burger made by Beyond and McDonald's. It's oh, great. being sold at. I think 600 different McDonald's yeah. restaurants. It's going to expand, I think, nationwide and probably globally right. very soon. So it's, it feels to me like this is a moment where we could advocate the positive solution, not the negative solution that we're going to take your burgers away, but the positive solution is, hey, just as we're, we're transitioning toward these electric cars, which is better for the environment, it gets us off these foreign oil exports from places like Russia, you know, in the Middle East, we can move away from being kind of captive to places like Russia and Ukraine and our food system by instead of feeding all this grain to the animals, let's convert into these delicious plant-based meat substitutes that are just as good, that are better right. for the environment and a little bit better for your health. Probably not too much better for your health, but a little bit better for your health. I mean, would you think that's a good idea to do right now? I it's mean, an absolutely great idea. Yeah. I'm just saying, telling you why it's not going to come from the it's government. Not come from the if okay. you want to tell people that, that's great. That's great. If, if, it if the is, government says that, then it's going to be seen as attacking the individual. And yeah. That's right. Okay. So I would come in with that positive message. Like I said, in terms of the negative message of eat less meat, yeah. the price tag will do that. Mm -hmm. In terms of the positive message of here's something you can eat that's great and happens to be cheap. Why don't you yeah. give it a try? Try it. You'll like it. Yeah. That is a message that can come from private you know, citizens yeah. and NGOs yep. and things like that. Sure. And that, so I would be pressing very hard with that right now, given yeah. the price of meat. meat is gonna go be up. opportunistic. It doesn't mean you have to be happy that poor people are facing yeah. higher food costs. That sucks. It does. And, um, but then I, I think the, um, it is okay to be opportunistic about that in terms of showing people some cheaper, yummy stuff that they could eat. Yeah. And I, yeah. I you know, not... I can go on a little editorialize. I, I've always thought that the, um, uh, the, the route to the end of meat mm -hmm. will not be, um, you know, uh, like a guy standing in the middle of Market Street saying like, are you a vegan? And why, aren't, why do you support the torture of animals, you non-vegan? Mm -hmm. Which is how uh, my friend are you aforementioned. Are me out on my own podcast, Noah? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and do you remember my friend Jenny with the bunny? Yes, I do remember we, your friend We met Jenny. you in front of the Pete's Coffee. Yeah. This is the first time we met. We met you in front of the Pete's Coffee uh -huh, uh -huh. on Market Street and um, at like Powell. Uh -huh. And you were standing out there. You know, we were going to like get a coffee or, or tea. And then you were standing out there asking us well, why vegan, we're not. Why you're not vegan? A vegan. <laughs> and then Jenny, because she loves to, you know, argue with random people because uh -huh. she needs a blog and doesn't have one. Great. But she's like, no, I'm going to go argue with that guy. Uh -huh. 
why is that guy sitting there trying to shame me about my food choices? I was like, let's just go get a tea. Like, it's okay. It was like, it was like vegans, Wait, vegans was are this? good. Uh, vegans are good. Let's just go get a tea. Yeah. It's like, um, when was this? This was years ago. This was before we met. So okay. about a year before we we cooperated on the on rabbit the campaign. Stuff. Okay. And cool. then so, but I remembered you. And so I remember yeah. that you were the person that my friend Jenny got mad at in the Aww. middle of the street. Poor but I, I, no, of course, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, she needs, a, she needs a blog so she can argue yeah. with people instead of like arguing with people in person. Oh my God, you should have seen when we were in Dolores Park uh-huh. and a, um, a Falun Gong person came up and tried to uh, Falun Gong her, and she's like, "Oh, you're a cult!" No, <laughs> I just yelled at the Falun Gong person. This poor old lady for like 20 yeah. minutes, like sitting there just berating her in the middle of the park. And I was oh like, gosh. "I was like, okay, it's a it's a cult. Just say no and wave them away. <laughs> Don't you know? Like, but I I save that for Twitter. Sure. Nice. And so anyway, but but I admire people who stand out there on the yeah. street and tell people to be vegan. I just don't think it's going to work. I think yeah. that. Um, you know, this evolutionary approach of like get people to substitute plant-based substitutes and just eat less meat is uh, I think is ultimately more effective because people are sort of low empathy creatures. And overall there are some who are not. Um, There are high empathy people out there and they spend most of their life wandering around worrying like, why isn't everyone else as high empathy as me? And, you know, you can do that. And um, then you become like, you know, Kurt Cobain, Mm -hmm. who's like, Sitting there singing like it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. feelings. Yeah, and then like that's a great song, by the way. It's a great song. It's the song that got me into Nirvana. It's something in the way is that what something it, it's, in the way? It's from the Batman movie. I I hadn't heard it in like twenty years, but it's a beautiful song. It's so haunting. The that's movie's really a good, good movie too. If you haven't seen, it. I didn't know that that was made for a movie. So it wasn't made for the movie. It's the the Batman movie was apparently inspired by that song. It was Matt Reeves, the director of the new Batman movie, Robert Pattinson was sitting at home listening to Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and heard that song and said, we need to make a Batman movie based on this song. And so... Amazing. The music... Wait, a new, a new Batman movie? A new Batman Should movie just that? came out. Are you, <laughs> are you on Twitter, bro? <laughs> Come on. So, yeah, yeah was, the new Batman movie Ukraine. is like the top movie in America. Really? And it's, it's, it's really good. Because I, I, I really much better than the last few. Like Ben Affleck was not the right Batman. I didn't like Robert the Christopher... Robert Pattinson is good. I didn't like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. In fact, I don't like... Except for Memento, I don't like anything by Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Nolan. Hmm. I thought Inception was bad. I thought Inception was bad too. It was like trudgingly yeah. humorless. Yeah, and it was it just too many plot holes. I didn't. Yeah, think, I didn't buy it. It was too strange, and I don't know, not too strange. It was just the strangest didn't have a coherent system to it. Yeah. It all kind of fell apart the and more you thought about it. So the protagonist's name is yeah. Dom Cobb. Dom Cobb, and he's not Burmese. How? So appropriation too. <laughs> There's another reason to not like appropriation. Nolan. It should be that is a that is definitely a. Yeah. a Anyway, yeah, but no, I mean, so where I agree with you on on this Kurt Cobain issue is that if you are the sort of person who just goes around trying to individually change people's minds about anything, yeah, I mean, like both of us have a social science background, you a little more than me at this point, and I think the social science is pretty clear that individual persuasion is astonishingly difficult. It just doesn't succeed. Right. You know, There's whole literatures about how to do it. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, and like 1% hit rates are amazingly successful, and that's just for exactly. one transaction. Like if you're doing your marketing campaign, you get 1% of the people who see your ad to make a purchase one time, not even change their identity. And the idea that you're going to be able to convince someone to not just change their purchase in the next day, but for the next 20 years of their life and become a vegetarian or vegan is, is impossible. I mean, it's, it's virtually impossible. Exactly. Where I disagree with you is that I think that moral and political movements have an incredibly important role in changing the incentive structure. So that all these things like plant-based meat substitutes, uh, like ad gag laws, yeah. like laws that require transparency, or laws like the fur ban that we passed, you know, partly with your support, 
are more likely to happen. And I think until you change those incentives politically, it's very hard for anything on a policy level to move people in the right direction. That's true. So just one example of this is just the amount of, of, of money that is being sent to big factory farms to subsidize meat consumption is astonishingly high. And this occurred in the pandemic. So, you know, when most businesses wow. that shut down during the pandemic, there was a little bit of aid provided, but it's not like they said, like every meal that you would have sold, if not for the pandemic, we're going to subsidize and pay you for that meal poor restaurant, especially small business, you know, but even McDonald's, I mean, it's like, like McDonald's and, and Burger King could say, Hey, every meal we could have sold, if not for the pandemic, please compensate us for that. Factory farmers are able to do that. You know, right. basically went to the government and said, Hey, we need every single pig that we were going to sell. You're going to have to pay us for this. Cause you know, we're important. We're part of the American tradition. You know, we believe in farmers and they got it. And unless you're able to overcome those sorts of incentives, it's going to be very hard for meat on a financial level on an economic level and on a cultural level to, to be overcome by these plant-based substitutes. So, I think that, that's right. So I think you need a movement. Uh, yeah, so, so to expand on that, I think we can see very well from the environmental movement how things have gone. Yep. Um, I think, so with the environmental I think movement- it's a great example and a great parallel. Um, you see, I'll, I'll, let's focus just on climate change. Mm -hmm. So climate change, you get these people Sunrise Movement in America, Extinction Rebellion in Britain, Greta Thunberg everywhere, who go out and just scream and scream and scream, we're all going to die from climate change, how are you robbing me of my future, or whatever, said Greta Thunberg, and then the Sunrise Movement. You sound so inspired. <laughs> yeah, so inspired. Are it's you like, inspired? <laughs> no. Okay. But, no, I, I think the, these, these people are like... They've utterly failed to make a popular movement. Uh -huh. The average American is willing to pay like five bucks to stop climate change, maybe. Yeah. And the there's been no popular movement. And what they, the primary thing that they've done in terms of popular movements is to create popular pessimism and climate anxiety. Hmm. Uh, and there's you have all these people, you have all these articles about like how to cope with your climate anxiety, and lots of, you know. Um, uh, psychotherapists now talking about people coming to them saying the world is ending because of climate and blah, blah, blah. To be honest, I think a lot of that cl so-called climate anxiety is really just people trying to find a focus for their general uneasiness with social change. Yeah. But that's another story. But the point wait, is what they... Just, wait, can you wait. just clarify your point? Because yeah. I, I think... The, I, I was about to. Okay, please, yeah. go ahead. Could, so, so I think that in terms of creating a popular movement, people like Sunrise and Extinction Rebellion and like a lot of these so-called climate activists you mm -hmm. see have utterly failed and will continue to utterly fail until, you know, it's too late to do anything. Um, but, but we have made amazing progress in halting uh, climate change. When you look at the actual scenarios mm -hmm. for where climate change is going, all the really bad scenarios have been ruled out now. And we are, while, while we've missed, we've almost certainly missed the target for 1.5 uh, 1 mm -hmm. degrees Celsius of warming which was the target we were aiming for for a long time, we've, I, will, I will go out and say we missed it. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. But if you look at two degrees Celsius of warming, which is worse, but you know, not catastrophic, yeah. um, there's a really good chance that we could hit that. Yeah. It will take more policies than we're doing now, but not like terribly much more. Mm -hmm. Not like some sort of like back to the pastoralism, degrowth bullshit level yeah. of stuff to hit two degrees Celsius. And so to do, why is that possible? I will tell you why it is possible. It is possible for two reasons. The biggest reason by far is new technology. Mm 
mm-hmm. is people, you know, like, you know, Tesla's an example, but also solar. Yeah, solar panels so, are solar cheaper than gas now. Super cheap. Yeah. yeah. Solar panels, super basis, cheap. They are cheaper. Wind, yeah. super cheap. And that took the effort of a huge number of engineers choosing to dedicate yeah. their life to that instead of how to sell more ads to people mm-hmm. or, you know, like make money in hedge funds or, or crap like that. Or, you know, how to get people to like click addictively on a thing. Yeah. And so... Those engineers devoted their lives to stopping the climate crisis. And that is the main reason. A secondary reason is that policy has really improved, especially in some countries. Um, You know, Britain basically canceled coal, did a carbon tax, and did what it needed to do. And now their emissions are just going down very strongly. Sweden's been very successful. Mm -hmm. So we've seen some of these countries be very successful. Um, so, but here's the, I think there's a chicken and the egg question because no, I, I want to ask the question, I why is the policy changing and why are engineers right. attracted and to I, this and issue? I, and I think part of it is because of people like Greta. Yes. And so, but, but I want to make this crucial distinction here. Please. Everything I'm saying is leading up to the following. Mm-hmm. It was all elites. What the activists did was they put the climate issue first and foremost in the mind of elites. Mm-hmm. And when elites budgeted what to spend their time on and what to spend their anxiety on and what to spend their life on, sure. they chose climate because of the activists. It was engineers and policy wonks who, will, who's, who have made the big improvements on climate change and who will ultimately save us from climate change. Those two classes of people, engineers and policy wonks, also entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I mean, like... You know, you have Elon Musk. He could have spent his life doing like payment systems, which was his first business, right? Mm-hmm. First successful business, and um, instead he went into like green energy mm-hmm. and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's that is not a coincidence. The you, pe- people like to laugh at Elon Musk and whatever, but you know, he he dedicated his life to this and and his fortune and everything, and slept on the factory floor at Tesla because the climate activists had put into his mind the very correct idea that climate change is an emergency. Yeah. And we don't want, we want to So think, why do you say it's the engineers and the, the entrepreneurs and the policy wonks who are achieving this change? If it is the activists who are essentially planting the seed for this all to develop. I mean, to because my, in my view, that is the, the, the foundational acti- condition for any of this change to happen, not just on climate, but on racial justice, on animal rights, you name it. Right. The issue salience is so important because we're such social animals. We get our cues from our society and the culture around us. If you don't have those cues, I don't care right. how smart you are and how much you could accomplish on an issue, you're probably not going to do it. Right. And the the thing is, I'm I want to the 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 people you know the the people who actually organize NGOs and who organize activist campaigns need to understand where the impact is and is not. Mm. If you are a leftist who dreams of you know a Bolshevik revolution or any sort of thing like that, or, or even like a broad-based Bernie-style political revolution, or, you know, mm-hmm. you think we'll elect socialist governments. Um, it, this is incredibly unlikely to happen. Certainly, the dreams of leftists that climate change will be such an existential emergency that it will lead to the ascendance of leftist movements and that leftists will actually take over governments because climate change is so bad. No. Maybe that'll happen, but not until it's way too late. Sure. Yeah. Um, that That's will not, a dystopia scenario. So. Right. It will not happen at this point, and it, pumping up people's climate anxiety and screeching about it more won't actually make that happen. It will not happen. Mm-hmm. The idea of a regular, you know, working class people do not give a shit 
-hmm. And they're not going to either. And this is not simply because of a failure of messaging or tactics or, you know, or whatever, PMC socialism. Mm -hmm. It's because fundamentally, these people have very different imperatives and they're thinking only in terms of short-term survival. Sure. And um, instead, the people who are able to think, you know, who have the economic surplus in their lives to think about the longer term are the PMC. Mm -hmm. They are the elite, the educated elite who have the power to dedicate their lives to inventing better batteries. What is PMC, by the way? professional managerial class okay, okay. and yeah. it's the idea that instead of working class socialism yeah. or or a gr- peasant socialism whatever peasant socialism being like mao whatever mm-hmm. uh working class socialism being like socialist parties in europe basically um instead of those things so so th- those were the the 20th century socialist paradigms sure um the agrarian one actually worked in terms of overthrowing governments but it led to bad results the um <laughs> to say the least the worker socialist parties ended up uh mostly getting a lot of reforms mm-hmm. uh done in like advanced countries and getting us weekends and you know like child labor protections yep. and then progressive income taxes mm-hmm. and so they sort of like blended and morphed into progressive movements mm-hmm. and so that was very effective but the thing is that that highbrow stuff like climate which really is a highbrow thing uh, and it's going to stay a highbrow thing until everyone's ready to die yeah. Um, it's going to stay a highbrow thing until it's too late because on, like highbrow looking forward into the future with scientific models is a fundamentally highbrow activity. If you try to try to make it mass, you will fail. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can try and you can be like, Noah Smith's such an elitist. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm going to stand on the street with my sign that says we're all going to die. Okay. Good fucking luck. Mm-hmm. You're standing on the street on like center street in Berkeley. You're talking to like college kids and still one out of 100 even give Gives any shit. shit. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, working in the, um, the animal rights space, you have uh, encountered the same thing. Sure. Um, and there's many reasons for it. We could spend all day discussing it. But the point is that activism of this type on these issues can work. It works by raise, changing the consciousness of the elite. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that, you can say that's an elitist thing to say. It's not revolutionary. It is fundamentally not a revolutionary activity to change the attention and mind share of the 20% that is the educated elite in this country. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying because I think policy is going to be enacted by the elite. And I think that you're right that the average person you talk to on the street doesn't have that 20-year, 10-year, frankly, even five-year time horizon, which makes sense. Technology, too. And technology, too. And business, deciding whether or not to offer a McPlant. To to even change the capacities of our society so we can actually achieve the changes we'd like is, is often a project of the elite. But I would, I would push back on, on causality, on whether the elites are the direct causes of the change, because I think what the elites respond to at the end of the day is mass popular pressure of various sorts. I mean, the obvious way they respond to mass popular pressures, someone like Elon Musk depends on people actually wanting to buy Tesla. So it requires a consumer base of lots of people who want to buy electric cars. They might not be thinking about how Tesla's mission is to transform the entire economy. Um, they might not be thinking about the climate crisis, but they know they want that car. You know? and, and that's, that's what course. ultimately drives Elon Musk's engine, literally. I mean, you're talking driving about his con- Tesla engines. You're talking and, about consumerist masses, not revolutionary masses. Not necessarily masses. just consumerist masses, though. I mean, you think about the demand for racial justice after George Floyd. You think about oh, no, the demand for, for LGBTQ rights after, oh, yes. after the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Okay, let, let's There's get this. many different types yeah. of, of popular demands that become issue priorities for the elite. And I think the causality runs from the popular demands to the elites and not vice versa. 
Let I me, just I think the evidence shows, and I just had Duncan Watts on the podcast. I don't know if you know Duncan Watts. Know, Do you know no. this guy? He's a he's a university professor at, and I mean university professor with capital U and capital P at, at University of Pennsylvania. Um, he used to work at Microsoft Research, and he has the most cited paper I think in the history of sociology. It's in Nature. It's called a, a model of small world networks. And one of the most important insights in his research is that the influencer model just is not that accurate. When you look at actually how change spreads, and he, he's very much like a data scientist and takes a data-centered perspective on everything from uh, healthcare behaviors to social media tweets going viral, it tends to be the case that you have large masses of easy to activate ordinary people, not influencers, ordinary people that provide kind of almost the, the infrastructure for the elites to move. The elites become interested and they're able to move because they have this mass of people who are going to give them momentum in the same way that Elon Musk could be the most brilliant entrepreneur and engineer in the world and make the most beautiful electric car in the world. If he doesn't have masses of people who are going to fuel his engine, and it's not going to go anywhere. And in contrast, if you have masses of people who really want to buy that beautiful electric car, the Elon Musk is going to come forward regardless. Someone in the elites is going to take advantage of that situation and say, wow, there's all these people want electric cars. There's, there's a market opportunity here. I'm going to take advantage of this. In the same way that, you know, right now, Vladimir Putin is, is in many ways taking advantage of a political market. There's an appetite in, among the Russian people. And I think if you look at the most recent polling data, this proves it's true. To me, it's not just Putin independently deciding I'm going to be an asshole and invade Ukraine. It's because there is mass popular support on some level, even in Russia. Um, you could say it's because of disinformation. You can say that's because of of deception that Putin is engaging, but still there is some popular support behind the elite decision. That's okay. at least my theory of change. Well, let me, let me clarify a couple, two things here Please. at least. For the first is um, about mass movements. I am not claiming that mass movements no longer work in this day and age. They okay. do. I am talking, they absolutely do. BLM is a good example. I am, um, I am talking about specific mass movements. Hmm. I'm talking about mass movements that rely on highly intellectual forward projections based on scientific models like climate change. Black Lives Matter, you see black people getting shot in the street, you see George Floyd getting choked to death and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, Eric Garner getting choked to death and people like this. You see, um, you see that, it is a real immediate thing that's happening right now and it gets people out in the street. Um, that, that is absolutely capable of uh, you know, putting people out in the street and who among us has not been in some way discriminated against by America's racial hierarchy in some small or big way. Mm -hmm. It is a mass appeal thing. What do you mean by that? Because what do I mean? Person, who among us? Yeah, who among? Because when you say that, like a yeah, I mean like a okay, white person yeah, that's right. If yeah. you are a if you are a cishet like Protestant white male mm -hmm. in America. You're, you know, then, then America's racial hierarchy is not really discriminating against you. How many of those okay. people yeah, are there in this yeah. country? Yeah. Like that is a tiny Very percent. Very narrow category. A mm -hmm. tiny percent of America's. So it's like in the, yeah. in the old, have you seen the video, Don't Be a Sucker? No. Oh, Don't Be a Sucker is the, the foundational work of modern liberalism. It was released by the Truman administration as part of the push to uh, desegregate the, the army. Mm -hmm. And it, it has this, you know, this wise, like, New Dealer kind of guy riding a train. And then he, um, you know, he, he, he rides a train to, like, Main Street America and gets mm -hmm. off in the square. And there's this guy who's a, a nativist, fascist, sort of right-winger giving this fiery speech. He's like, I'm an American. Why are these immigrants coming here? And, and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the wise, knowing New Dealer, this is called Don't Be a Sucker. Hmm. And uh, this... this New Deal guy, you know, he says, um, uh, 
he he gets some like a uh, Hungarian Jewish guy from the the Holocaust, like Holocaust survivor, to come and give a speech about how like this is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. We can't let it happen here. Mm-hmm. And then like he's like, they're going to discriminate against you know like um uh you know Catholics or or whatever like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then Masons. Yeah. They mention Masons, which is not a thing anyone thinks about anymore. Sure, uh, Masons. But then some this this one like random dude in the in the crowd just goes, hey. I'm a Mason, he says, and, and I feel like that, like sure. that line, that 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 feeling of like, hey, that I'm could a happen Mason. to me. Yeah, sure. it's like that could happen to me. Like, you know, there's, it's not possible to have a social hierarchy of yeah. respect and status in this country yeah. with a tiny bit of people hoarding all the respect and status. Yeah. You cannot have, you know, cishet, like Protestant white men, yeah, uh, who are a tiny percent of the populace, being the only ones who are considered real, full, true sure. Americans. Um, why and can't everyone you deploy that same sort of, sort of argument class. for any social justice cause? You know, for climate change, maybe you're not the person who's suffering because from... climate because people don't think of climate change as social justice cause. Well, but they they think of you know certain interests yeah. at stake, and we can expand the, oh, okay, the so, narrative of, as to whose right. interests are at stake to include people who otherwise might not feel threatened right yeah. now. So what you just you know, did was like a highly conditions. intellectual exercise that most yeah. people are just never going to do. Well, but you could say the same thing about the Mason example. You know, you're you're trying to expand the consciousness of the average white person in America to realize, hey, you might not feel like it's a problem that we're being racist to black people, but they're going to go for the Masons next. And similarly. You might say, hey, you might not be concerned about the Bangladeshis who are living underwater now, but soon it's going to be New York City. I mean, why can't you make that same moral argument to drive a mass movement? No? Uh, no. Uh, well, I mean, you, you, can say, you, can say, you can sit here on this podcast with me and say that you can, yeah. but then everyone who's actually tried to do that so far has it's, just it's utterly literally. failed and face-planted, including Greta Thunberg. Yeah. And so um, uh, I think they, they painted over the mural of Greta mm. Thunberg because it looked too much like Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Did it really? <laughs> it really, like, they painted Greta Thunberg as Vladimir Putin. I literally Putin on did this. not think about this until they, now, but they, now that I'm imagining their faces, I can kind of see it. <laughs> I yeah. can see the resemblance. Wait, which mural is this? It, they they might still this? be there. I think it's near Union Square. In San Francisco. I think sorry. so. There's, there's they a, thought there that mural. you look too much like... Or it might be, they might still be there, but yeah. then there's this there's this glowering, like, sort of, like, weird medieval painting adult child mural. The San Francisco murals, by the way, are the wackest shit in this world. Yeah. Like... I, I don't know. Like there was this one. There, uh, I, I saw one. Uh, there was one. There's there's one um, on like Franklin Street that has like a, a baby in a police uniform. That's it. It's just it's just a baby cop. That's it. That's the message. Wait, it, was this mean, a sanctioned mural? Or is this just graffiti? No, it's a sanctioned mural. It's a sanctioned mural. And right okay. next to there, there was some billboard that someone had taken out that said the only thing it said was Asians are strong, and it had a stylized Aww, picture of like that. a leaping tiger. It's like <laughs> Asians are strong, tiger. Very it's convincing. Like, come on, yeah, Very it's convincing. like great, guys. It's yeah. it's wonderful. Um, the okay, back to the point. Um, the point is. My point is not that mass movements are ineffectual in this day and age in America. They can be incredibly powerful, as we've seen. My point is that mass movements based on projections of future things, based on scientific models, Mm -hmm. are are not going to happen in this day and age, or any any day and age, until, until we give people like, you know computer chips in their brain that are able to like make everyone think in graphs. Like, or or some some weird sort of universal radical AI based education. I don't even know, man. Yeah. Science fiction stuff. Like, the, but the point is that we like everyone who is mass movements do work for some things. Mm-hmm. Everyone who has tried to turn climate change into a mass movement has failed. Yeah. And I predict 
that they will continue to fail, which doesn't mean that activism is useless. It does not. Activism is super useful. It just is useful in a different way than for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It's not about, you know, riding in the streets and like putting pressure on, like mass pressure on society to change. It's about influencing the mind share of elites. And the more that activists understand on some level that that is actually the game being played, the more successful they will be I think, yeah, because they'll understand what they're about, and they'll stop having dreams of being Vladimir Lenin and yeah, then, or whoever, whatever. Like because, yeah, and they'll start, you know, because ultimately, when you see how the, the climate change is a mass movement, founders, it's whenever you ask working class people to make the slightest bit of sacrifice in terms of gas prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you saw that in the Yellow Vest protest, for example. In yeah, France, where. Yeah, right, you get protests against small. you. Exactly, and then you've got the entire population, right. <laughs> not just not supporting you, but actually actively right. opposing your efforts to make a more sustainable energy exactly. system because you haven't realized that the average working class person has other priorities. Exactly. Yeah, but, and now you've got the Republicans. You've got Marco Rubio running around saying, saying, what is the Republican Party? It's a multiracial working class party. Yeah. That is exactly what Democrats would love to be. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit because the Republicans do stuff that hurts the working class. Mm-hmm. But if the Democrats pitch is we are going to raise the gas, gas prices, prices on your commute that you have to do because we didn't build any housing and you have to live out in this poor exurban commute to your service job yeah. in the city where you like smile and nod at rich people all day for like, 15 bucks an hour, that's your job, that's what you do, and you have to commute because we didn't build any trains. We don't even know how to build trains for you know any reasonable price. We didn't build trains, so you have to drive on these beautiful highways that we built back in like 1960. And so... That is your life. And now we're going to make your life a little bit more onerous and a little bit more expensive. Maybe they really will vote for the GOP. I feel like we're conflating two separate issues, though, in in this analysis. One is whether the framing should be a positive or negative message. And second is whether we can actually convince a broad-based popular movement to to think about the long term. And I think you can think the former is true, that we can, or I should say the latter is true, that we can convince a broad-paced popular movement to think about the long term. And I think this is what movements have done for hundreds of years, frankly. When? But I think it depends What's on... What's an example? Well, I mean, I think even the American Revolution is an example of this. I think in the short term, the American Revolution was a terrible decision. So many people died. The economy was in utter disrepair. But there is a real popular movement to say, in the long term, it's better for all of us if we have a democratic government where we have taxation with representation, we have some control over our own lives, our own political system, where the British East India Company doesn't come in and basically elbow everyone out of the way and get all the profits. We deserve to have a share in our future. And that was a long-term decision. And honestly, maybe not even a good decision in the sense that probabilistically, most people start civil wars and revolutions die. (laughs) They don't actually win and create a republic that exists for the next 250 years. Fair enough. You can look at the civil war as another example. I mean, there are a lot of decisions that are made there that depended on a lot of people deciding, you know what, it's worth it. There's this longer term vision we have of a unified republic. Um, I think that was probably the bigger inspiration for most people. I mean, we like to popularly conceive of that as a fight against slavery. And there was a part of it that was about fighting against slavery. But for most people, it was just about the integrity of the union, when our country to stick together. For both cases, and it, it, required was nation- lots it was nationalism. It was nationalism. Yeah, it was nationalism. And, nationalism and that is something is that people really... long-term bl- thing. Well, I think it is a long-term thing. I mean, it's, it's an identity that in, in many ways affects my short-term psychological interests. Yes. But to the extent that it has any material benefit to me, it's a long-term commitment to something like national solidarity or, or democracy or taxation with representation. And, for an and elite, I think that's what good movements person, do. For they, an elite they, person, it is that. Well, but I think for the, the, the key is when movements really succeed, it's when they actually, I actually think it's the opposite. I think the elites are much more strategic and engaged in a calculus about these decisions in a way that the average person 
It's, it's, it, it really is just a, a, when movements succeed at least, they manage to transform the identities of ordinary people. And this is where I think Greta has been successful. I'm not saying she's been as successful as we need her to be. And, but, but I think there's even some data suggesting that Extinction Rebellion, for example, when there have been more prominent actions and more media attention around the protests they did in the United Kingdom or even the United States, and don't quote me on this because I haven't looked at the data very carefully, popular opinion has shifted in the direction of thinking climate change is an emergency that the public should be very concerned about. You know, that there is some shift in public opinion as a result of these actions and all the attention they receive. And we're still very far from where we need to go. And I say this despite the fact that I disagree with you. I think that even two degrees Celsius, I would say it's certainly not a high risk of catastrophic climate change, but there is some risk of catastrophic climate change. And, and I think it's probably- It's the best we're going to get. Yeah, probably it's gonna, the best we're going to do. But you know, even if it's a 1% or a 0.1% chance of some sort of catastrophic event, like a disruption of the thermal hailing system that it's shuts down good. the Gulf Stream. That's it's really, really bad. It's That's really like bad. potentially the end of human civilization as we know it, you know, and, and maybe for perpetuity. Maybe we never bounce back from that. And even if it's a 0.1% chance of that happening, we should probably be investing quite a bit in the same way that, you know, if there's a 1% chance you drive on a highway, you're going to die. You're going to think a lot more carefully about driving on that highway every time you drive. Okay. I, I'm not arguing with any of that. Okay. Um, because to argue that that would be pointless. <laughs> You can, I'm, I'm saying that when, like, try, try raising the price of gas 50 cents. Sure. You can talk, you can tell this all to me and I can be like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yeah. I have a PhD. Mm -hmm. Do you have a PhD too? I don't, okay. sadly. But you could. I dropped easily. out. Mm -hmm. but, you, but you could if you want. <laughs> and so, but you're, you know, PhD level person. Um, the point is that like, I've you just, can I've get some professors who would probably argue with that, but thank you very much. Yes, for you can yell at us. You can yell at me all. You can yell at me all you want. Yeah, and maybe which I love doing. I, yeah, I appreciate you can the yell fact at, you yeah, let me yell. You absolutely, know. absolutely. <laughs> I'm just saying, but the the the, the, the person that, then raise gas prices on like you know yeah. the average person in like Emeryville. Yeah, and they will just vote for Republicans. Yeah. Maybe not in Emeryville. Maybe they'll vote for a more conservative Democrat who doesn't raise their gas prices yeah. in ohio in oregon in wisconsin in you know any of these places florida's a red state now mm -hmm. florida was a purple state when i grew up and they said eventually it would inevitably be a blue state two years ago we were talking about blue texas yeah. now suddenly all the hispanic texans revolted not all but mm -hmm. many a great many especially in the heavily hispanic areas where there's like almost no white people mm -hmm revolted and we're like no we want conservatives and if you grew up in texas you knew this was always possible this was always likely to happen um democrats are going to get wiped out this year in the midterms mm -hmm. um i really hope that we can bounce back and and you know stop something like a trump coming back in 2024 i can spend my life my elite you know one percent one percenter life thinking about the problem of climate change. And to some degree, I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about a number of problems, but that's one big thing I think about is climate change. But I also recognize that you raise the gas prices of your average American person 50 cents, and you have a political riot on your hands, and they will elect Republicans and try, and you will not get Republicans to come on your podcast so you can yell at them. I've gotten a few, and I'll try and recruit okay. some more. Fair but, enough. Yeah. Everyone but wants to be the guy with the bullhorn. Isn't the present moment a counterexample to your, your theory, though? 
I mean, we, we've seen gas prices increase by much more than 50 cents per gallon over yeah, the last we few have. weeks. You watch what and happens. And yet the American, and- Republic, American public is still very supportive of sanctions. They're very supportive of, of everything the Biden administration, not everything, but a lot of what the Biden administration has done with some very rare exceptions like Tucker Carlson, even people on the right are on board. Right, and it's because we have this sense of of, right. of national solidarity. Nationalism. We believe. Well, it's not yes. just nationalism. It's 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 we a do. belief based on you know, I hate to say it because I think it is based in part on empathy. Just this a, a very human emotion that we see the pregnant woman coming out of the hospital. Right. We see the kids cowering in these theaters, yes. and we now now we it's white these. people being bombed. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, <laughs> fair that, enough. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is part of it, probably too. You yeah. hate to say it, and I'm, I'm obviously like, I'm a person of color. I wish there were more empathy across racial lines, but I think there is some evidence that there's more empathy for people who are similar to. A bit I mean, more, I think yeah. this is this is classic psychological research showing that homophily is a real thing. We like people who are like us, and so if it's a Christian, well, you're, and you're, you're Christian, right. you're going to care more. Sure, but. The point is, we've seen people across this nation sacrifice pretty significantly and being willing to sacrifice for a distant country that has, I mean, there are some indirect effects, but I don't think most people are sitting at home today watching Fox News are thinking to themselves, food prices are going to go up, or Ukraine is a very important national resource, and therefore we have to go and make sure Ukraine isn't captured by Russian interests. They're saying, we think we should defend these people because it's the right thing to do. I think you're because absolutely Because these right. people are suffering, and that's not okay. And that's a beautiful thing. And that shows the power of people, including ordinary people, not just the elites, to think beyond their own self-interest. That's true. But why aren't people in India thinking the same? Or China. Or China, but China, maybe, maybe, China is maybe very not, pro-Putin right now. Maybe they're not getting the, the, or the right info, but India yeah, is. In are. India, it's, it's, yeah, in China, Info's I think partly in it's because, you know, you don't even have Google or Facebook yeah, and okay. Times available. Let's talk about India. India is, is, a, is a tougher example. You've got all the information. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about it, honestly, to say. What, what I, I will say is I think I do. that... You think it's just about the national interests? Yeah, because for India, Russia was a was one of their protectors against China for yeah. many years. They're not going to be any well, still are. They buy a lot of military technology still from are. Russia to they're, this day. They're, yeah. they're buying less, and they're going to buy a lot less after this mm-hmm. because they just saw how well that technology works. Yeah. And so also Russia has, will have trouble selling I'm it. I'm not as convinced about that because the sort of fighting that they're engaging right now in the Ukraine is so different from the sort of fighting India and China would engage in. But anyways, that's neither Not as much as you think. It's Maybe. all just a drone and missile fight now. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, fair enough. I mean, yeah. It's drones and missiles, and yeah. the Russians didn't do so well. Anyway, but the point is that whether or not that was that's a deserved perception. Um, no, India has been China's protector. Or, uh, sorry, Russia has been India's protector that's and right. patron against China. Yeah. And that is why India continues to equivocate and continues to sit on the fence and doesn't have as much empathy yeah. when they see the Ukrainian kids getting bombed or whatever. Yeah. And. Um, you know, even though Ukraine shares their values a lot more than Russia, Russia was their, their helper and protector. In America, you know, um, we had a Cold War versus Russia. Lots of old people remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia berates us and threatens us and blah, 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 blah. That's a powerful thing. It is. Empathy is important. What, pe- what you don't get mass movements for, I think, is, long-term, is long-termism, mm-hmm. is projection. What, what people have a great difficulty doing. You saw this with COVID. Mm-hmm. Absolutely with COVID. It's like you saw everyone, you know, cases were just going up and you're like, here is an exponential function. In two mm-hmm. weeks, COVID will be everywhere. And everyone's like, nah, it's not yet. I don't agree with that. I mean, like, no, I think ah. people are pretty supportive of the lockdowns. We're sitting here in Berkeley, <laughs> California, where, you know, mass now, you're vigilantism. Just, you're, <laughs> you're an out-of-touch elite. Yeah, well, people were not... People, I don't think it's just in No Berkeley. one followed I mean, the lockdowns. We had Google <laughs> mobility data showing people didn't actually follow lockdowns throughout yeah. America. 
Like you had people doing lockdowns. The lockdowns ended after three months. We had no appreciable real lockdowns in America. We had masks. We had like some silly social distancing stuff, which amounted to sort of germophobia for a lot of people, like washing your hands with hand sanitizer when it's all airborne. We still have Joe Biden as president and and the Democrats having won the most recent election, despite the fact that they were the ones who are mostly advocating a lot of these policies. That's right. But that was a massive transformation. (laughs) After a lot of people died. Yeah. Um, So then... The point is that nobody, people kept not taking COVID seriously until it was already too late. Again and again, every wave, Omicron, Delta, every time. Right now, we're going to have another wave of COVID, by the way. Um, It's not going to be super deadly, but we're going to have one uh, starting now. I know. Or shortly. No one believes it. Yeah, I think, did you blog about this? I don't even remember. No, because there's nothing I can do. Like... People yeah. do not project. No, the numbers are skyrocketing and, in a lot of countries and guess in Europe, and it's going to come here too. Yeah, yeah. and guess what's and, and you know it's like it's going to be a lot it's less. Because de- it's a it's variant of deadly. Omicron, right? Omicron that's basically it's that, not- but it's also because not everyone got Omicron. Yeah. Okay. And there's we have and a lot of unvaccinated are, people. Yeah. Yeah. The vaccines are waning in influence. We're yeah. thinking about a fourth booster. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't I don't actually see the problem as long termism. I see it as just a classic collective action problem. I think most people. See a long-term problem. They might be concerned about it, but they also feel that my personal ability to do anything about this is essentially zero. That's a good point. And, and so no, I think that's, that's and I think you're right. What, you're right. What, what, what happens is when movements seize the moment and make everyone feel like, no, we actually can do something about this. We just have to work together. And I think COVID is actually a positive example. Of this. You see it as a negative example. I mean, we had almost every business in the United States of America, certainly in this state, shut down. And if a political party had done this for any other reason, you know, well, maybe not, maybe not any other reason. If we were in a war, they'd probably understand it. But when leadership was shown and we said, look, we have to do this. And I know you don't understand it yet, but if we don't do something about this, March 16th was a day in 2020 when oh. Gavin Newsom declared a lockdown across the entire state of California. It was kind of astonishing to me how, how quickly people jumped on board. Businesses shut down and some people grumbled and there was a lot of a lot of upset stomachs about this. For the most part, people are very supportive. And not only that, people actually got mad if you didn't support it. You know, there was, there, was, there was real enthusiasm behind the solidarity that was required to fight COVID. And, and it was because leadership did a good job of showing that there's a collective action problem. We all have to work together. Every one of our actions has an impact on the people around us. But if we do work together, we can overcome this. And when that messaging was effective when it was clearly explained to people, then ordinary people did say like, no, I actually do believe this. I do want to wear my mask. I do want to get the vaccine. I don't want to go to the grocery store. I don't want the restaurants or gyms open, even though it causes me some pain because I understand in the long term, we're all going to be better off, including our economy, if not everybody dies. So to me, it's just a classic Mankerls and collective action problem. And it's our... It's, it's the elite's responsibility to solve that problem. So in that sense, the elites are responsible because they're the ones who we elect and we've anointed, whether they're CEOs of some corporation or congressmen in D.C., they're the ones who are responsible for trying to bring everyone together and find that collective solution that makes everyone feel like we can do something about this if we work together. All right. Let's revisit this after the election this okay, year and enough. see how Democrats do. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they're going to they're gonna lose just because of the natural political cycle. That's, that's always going to happen. There's some of that. There's, there's, I think, kind of a loss aversion in political cycles where the most recent party to lose, their voters are always going to be more motivated because they're, you know, but, just emotionally, it's more painful to lose than win. But not in 2002. 2002. Remind me what happened in 2002. This is... Well, I can remind you what happened in 2001. Of, okay, 2001. So 2002, uh, I guess the Republicans won? That's right. Probably. Okay, I don't even remember. Yeah, but. they were, well, they won even though George Bush was the incumbent. Yeah, okay. Um, Probably one of the rare examples then of the last 20 years. Maybe the only example. Uh, 
Because midterms, but the, okay, but the party in control almost right, always. But you have to look at the midterms. size of the shift here. Okay. So usually most of the shifts are moderate, mm-hmm. moderate size shifts. We've had two big waves. Mm-hmm. We've had well, a couple, no, three big waves if you count. Go back to Gingrich. Mm-hmm. But if in, in this in this century we've had two big waves, we've had the in this century. Yeah, uh, wow. Oh, yeah, you mean 20, in the 21st, 21st century. century? I thought you meant in the last 100 years. No, 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 in the yeah, 21st okay, century. Okay. I was going to say. Um, yeah, so we've had, uh, in, this, in this short century, Yeah. Uh, we have had so far two big waves. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had the anti-Obama wave of the Tea Party Congress elected 2010. in 2010. Mm-hmm. And we have had the blue wave in um, 2018. 2018, yeah. And we are probably going to have another wave, although I think that the Democrats might be able to stop it by doing a rally around the flag thing against Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's their only hope. Yeah. But... People are mad that's at inflation. They're gonna, me, honestly. <laughs> but anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate that. That's what it comes down to. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. You. Yeah. Your no, point. no. So you I mean, you think, but you think that. So if, you if hate not it. For that, it's so you hate it. Yeah. yeah. Like the point. The point is that you know, that's part of what's wrong with politics. Every, though uh, the the modern American left. Yeah. Is, in many ways, you know, there, there's. There's some things they get right, and then in many ways, their worldview is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a lot of... And you see this in the number of leftists who are willing to go to bat for Putin's narratives in this war. Yeah, You see Lee Carter. Mm-hmm. You see the DSA's International Committee. Yeah. You see some left... You know, some leftists are like, no, fuck Putin. Sure. Some leftists are like... Some leftists are like, no, well, no, act- actually, there's those that one small group of neo-Nazi guys in Ukraine. Yeah, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, these yeah. folks. If those are even leftists, uh, those are those are those are red brownists. Those are like <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard. Those careful. are like those are those careful are careful now, Noah. Careful now. Those are red browners. No, I'm not not careful. Those 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 are people who who switched to fash because they thought there was more energy there. Yeah. They were like they were like, well, I was I was lefty, and now I see that the fash has more energy, so I'm going to switch to the fash. As someone who personally knows Glenn Greenwald, I will very vigorously disagree that sentiment glenn is an amazing dude and i think he just very much believes in civil liberties and whoever's going to take on the position that defends civil liberties most in his fox news contributor he is regular fox news contributor anyways we could disagree about glenn but okay but you're i don't know i I actually i don't know very much about glenn greenwald at all and i make a point of pride about not knowing about him but i can tell you about tulsi gabbard and about um there's there's other people i do know about yeah uh more um and no, the, but those are the, I'm not. Those aren't even the people I'm talking about. These okay. are people who are not red browns at all. Like mm-hmm. Lee Carter, he's not. He's not going to be a fascist. Yeah. Um, but I'm talking about like uh, the DSA International Committee mm-hmm. or whatever. Even Jacobin has kind of been kind of wishy washy. They're the sort of sure. more intellectual face of the lefty movement. The point is that like there is a there is the the leftist movement in America, and I don't mean social reform. I don't mean Black Lives Matter. I don't mm-hmm. mean any mm-hmm. of that. I don't mean. Um, you know, gender activists. I mean the socialist left, mm-hmm. which is very strong out here in California. The socialist left has assembled a package of beliefs that has huge parts of pieces of bullshit contained inside it. Um, just like vast misunderstandings of the way the world works. And we can talk more about this later, but I think that popularism within that small space mm-hmm. Is going to be is not going to easily translate outside that space. Sure. Um, the the number of people who buy into the the sort of Bernie DSA Jacobin sphere is small and will remain small. We are that that group is a by and large toothless group that is 
fairly popular among the youth in the way that, you know, rock and roll was popular among the youth of the 60s or something. It's like, it's not popular in the way that, like, communism was popular among the you know, peasants of China who just wanted land reform from these awful landlords. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and and never got it because Mao went back on his promise. But then it's, you know, um, it's not, it's not that. It's not even like, you know, workers who would strike. It's not, it's it's not the labor movement that gave us like the the mid 20th century unions either. It is, it is more so like what do you the, mean specifically though? What do you think are the problematic beliefs that say like the Bernie Sanders types have that oh, are problematic alienate beliefs? Them? What what specifically are you, are you thinking of? Oh my God! It's like I'm I'm gonna do a big. Is a it big like post the anti-patriotism thing? Because I don't even think Bernie is so really de- on that bandwagon. So degrowth, degrowth stuff. You see a lot of these people nimbying against solar projects and yeah. stuff, and also nimbying against housing. Mm-hmm. Like that's just absolute batshit. Yeah. <laughs> like the idea that you could nimby your way to pro- to prosperity or mm-hmm. to to anything that's good for the working class is batshit yeah and and that is the 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 package of beliefs around degrowth around the idea that we can't we've got to stop this solar farm Mm -hmm. you know because like of course they're allied with you know just a bunch of suburban homeowners who don't care about anything except their views right um the, like the, what happened to UC Berkeley recently, where they basically exactly yeah, that's yes. an example that, that was yeah. so dysfunctional. That and wasn't yet, leftist nimbyism for no, the most that, part. That was just the suburban. That was just you know, that, view that was just rightist nimbyism. To <laughs> be honest, right-ist. like even yeah. if you vote for Democrats, you're a rightist <laughs> nimby. So, but okay, but the but the point is that you see a lot of eager socialist types running yeah. out and supporting nimby stuff. You see DSA chapters blocking solar projects around this country, blocking mm-hmm. wind farms. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, all because of the ideology of degrowth. Sure. The idea that any growth is bad. You see people starting to agitate against electrification of the vehicle fleet. Mm-hmm. Like, this is batshit. Let me try and steal a man that perspective. I have a lot of people like that in my social network, as you might I know, imagine. and I am speaking to them, yeah. and I am like, <laughs> I'm like, snap back to reality, because please don't just become so, Republicans of the left, okay? So I, I don't think most of the people who are blocking development on the left, and I think there are... There's a subset of the anti-development people who are not leftist. I mean, yeah. the, the Berkeley Ro- campaign Nathan, is Nathan, Nathan J. Robinson the other day wrote this thing. He's like, instead of building new houses, why don't we just build new cities? Sure. Yeah. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. So, he, and he is an example of like a genuine leftist. Yeah. I think is, is, yeah. But, and I think the argument is that development is going to expand the pie hugely. And if we're concerned about political power, we have to make sure that the more marginalized elements of society secure a significant portion of that pie or what's going to happen is when the pie is expanded it'll just reinforce the power structures that currently exist and give developers and wealthy people even more power to create the sort of society they want which if the last 30 years of american history is a lesson of what sort of society they want it's going to be more inequality you know uh less health care more child poverty um lower real wages and so on and so you know so for example just to one one trivial example, I was just hanging out with my friend Mari, who's on the rent board of Berkeley a couple of days ago. One of the reasons, and a lot of, you know, Yimby types will say, why are you demanding 100% or even 50% you know, affordable housing in these new developments? We just need more housing. Don't you understand the way the market works? For them, it's not just about the straightforward supply and demand. It's about the political economics of the situation. And if we don't secure Berkeley, where marginalized folks are able to secure obtain some sort of political power and get a fair share of the surplus that's generated by these projects, then politically over the long term, we're just going to see gentrification continue. We're going to see more people driven out of this community. 
and less power and influence for the folks who've had very little influence in yeah. the city. And what if the does that, that does that make sense to you? Do you think that's a no. bullshit argument? Yeah, bullshit. Okay. I mean, I, and the reason it's the reason it's bullshit, but it's, is because it's a these plausible are, argument. You, it's it's no. a factual debate as to whether that's true or not, right? We should look at the data to see, from just a political economics perspective, is it the case where you have lots of pro-development policies in place? What happens to that community afterwards? Do we become more like Texas, or do we become more like Scandinavia? Right. So, so when you look at this is the kind of thing that doesn't actually work on paper and not work in the real world. It doesn't even work on paper, but showing that it doesn't work on paper requires a level of attention and critical thought that most people are unwilling to devote to it. Uh -huh. um, whereas showing that it doesn't work in the real world is easy. You just point. Yeah. So what, 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 actually, let me, this let, me is let me try and make an argument for how it works on paper, right? Say that you we, just did. Well, well, I'll, I'll make one additional point, which is say we have a situation where we, we promote more development, and in the short term, there's more housing. I mean, even housing prices go, go down a little bit for everybody. But in the longer term, we have large developers who have a, a disproportionate share of the surplus, the economic surplus that's generated. They make more political contributions and secure even more political power because every city council member is always worried about economic activity and tax revenue and all those things. And these are the folks who are driving all this tax revenue and economic activity. And they're able to cut taxes or prevent taxes from being imposed on the largest corporations in Berkeley, partly because of the political power they've seized by coming to Berkeley and building all these big developments and becoming big players in Berkeley politics. Right? Then you have a situation where, in the short term, yes, housing prices have gone down a little, which is good for everyone. But in the long term, the political economics of Berkeley have changed so that the largest developers have the most power and are able to prevent something like a wealth tax from being enacted. Is that a plausible that, factual scenario, or does that just seem no. absurd? No. Do you think a wealth tax gets enacted at the city level? No, it doesn't. But, it, it, I mean, in theory, it could be. So that was just something? Yeah. No, it can't. No, it, there, there's it, legal, it could be. There's legal problems. I'm, I'm the lawyer in the room, and I'll tell you there's Fair a way enough. to overcome okay. it. And there's actually even a legal memorandum written by some law professors the, about how, even at the municipal or state level, we could pass a wealth tax. Uh, it has a lot to do with the home rule system in the, in the state of California. Right. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Let's set aside the legal question of whether it's even possible. Fine. Just, and just think about the political economics and the... Wealth yeah. taxes, the only place you see local wealth taxes in the world is Switzerland's... Uh, yeah. Uh, whatever they call them. Cantons. Cantons, yeah. yeah. Um, that's right. Th that's really the only place where you see it. Mm -hmm. And Switzerland's wealth tax... So... I don't want to emphasize too much the wealth tax. Okay. I just mean that the political it, economics changes in a way. It was something you that, just randomly pulled out. Yeah, yeah. Just, just use that as an illustrative example right. of the sort of thing that becomes harder. Even in the short term, it actually helps us get lower housing prices. We have a little more housing but units. But what do, what do developers want to do? With, they want lower with, taxes. They don't want the, real estate transfer taxes. They, so an example of this is, I don't remember the proposition, but in, um, in San Francisco, you may remember this. I think it was four years ago there was a proposition passed with Mark Menos support on uh, gross receipts, like a gross receipts tax on all right. large companies that was meant to support housing and homelessness efforts. And a lot of the people who were supposedly pro-development for you know, basically affordable housing reasons, like Scott Wiener, for inexplicable reasons were opposed to this. Even though a lot of billionaires like Bar Mark Benioff and a lot of economists were saying, no, this makes complete sense. We absolutely need more investment in housing. We need more permanent supportive housing. This is one of the ways to do it, to reduce homelessness. And so from a policy perspective, it made complete sense. But you saw all of the pro-housing people line up against this tax because they're in league with developers and, and large corporations that didn't want this tax passed. So that is an example. I could send you the exact proposition. I don't remember the name of it. Do you remember this tax? Yes. Okay. I remember the tax. Okay. And this proposition. Yeah. And, and this is an example where like Scott Wiener, who you would, I would have thought this would be the sort of thing he supports a lot. 
but he was against it. And partly because he was aligned to the same developers and corporate interests who bought more housing because yeah. it helps their bottom line. And it See, this, is, this is a housing. fundamentally associative conspiratorial view of the world. Yeah. This is what Richard Hofstadter was talking about when he wrote the book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of, you know, you, you look at people who want to build more housing. You say they are in league with these other people. The tech companies, yeah. You think they're in league with this, these villains. Yeah. Then you get a conspiratorial mindset that absolutely just utterly screws you. And, and that's what makes people susceptible to fantasy beliefs. You see this on the right, of course. Mm -hmm. QAnon, they're just like insanely steeped in conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. It's just what they do all day. It's what they do. Did you just of... compare me to QAnon? No. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, isn't there that so podcast called the TrueAnon podcast? Uh, it sounds like something that's a left that it's a, exists. That's a, it's a lefty lefty podcast of this. It's the lefty uh, equivalent of QAnon. Yeah, a, a sounds interesting. Son of rich landowner, son of rich landowners from Marin yeah. decided to become like a cosplay lefty. Uh -huh. I think. Okay. Uh, I think that's what it is. Um, I could have just insulted someone I don't really know, but <laughs> I don't care because the insults are probably right. <laughs> yeah. Probably an understatement. Yeah. No, the point is that yes, this is conspiratorial thinking. It is not limited to the right. Yeah. It is. You know, there are. People on the left, and so the the associative thinking of taking why is people, it conspiratorial thinking? What's the explanation for Scott Weiner's vote on the proposition then? Or not even a vote because it was a, I don't know because they didn't follow it closely, and so okay. I, I would have to go look. Okay. The point is that I, will say, I have looked, and it was I, very confusing to me okay. why I wasn't supporting it. I and he do didn't not, give a good explanation. Okay, but please, I do not think that Scott Weiner makes correct decisions on everything in the world. Mm -hmm. I am not a giant like Scott Weiner booster who is like ah we, the great Weiner makes you know like. <laughs> He gets everything right. No, I don't think so. I don't think that about any politician. He should hire you to do his public relations. The great wiener. Is the great wiener. <laughs> Mega wiener. He's headed like, for the state senate. If, or actually, he's already in the state senate. What am I saying? He's already moved on to the state senate. He's, we already he's, had one politician named Wiener who made too many wiener <laughs> jokes. Too many wiener jokes, yeah. All yeah right. so. um, I mean, he, he, I, I generally like him. He's a good guy. Yeah. Um, I know him, yeah. I've, I've met him too. I think he's a good guy too. Yeah, I think I he's a good guy. I also think that decision was inexplicable and probably had something. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think but I'm not. I'm not even just like the people you hang with. See, you start just listening to the people you hang with a little too much, even when they're very wrong. That can be right. Yeah, that can be right. But when you start making that idea, yeah, that associative thinking, mm -hmm. the idea of X is in bed with Y as the foundation of actual policy thinking, mm -hmm. that's when stuff gets conspiratorial. Gets okay, fair enough. And it's and. No, you're not QAnon, obviously. Yeah. Those people are, are batshit assholes. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just <laughs> teasing you. But the, no, but the point is that um, that I do see on the socialist left, not the not the you know uh, like liberal Black Lives Matter, yeah, uh, you know, gender movement left, mm -hmm. but on the on the socialist left. These are which and and those two lefts are sort of like the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force in that they're the same force at high energies. Hmm. but then different at low energies. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. uh, so, so very uh, good pun there. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, all right. But those, so those movements. For the five people on this podcast, who know what they Who knows what that means. That's right. <laughs> you know what those two forces are. Yeah. So. Go Google them. They're interesting. Yes. Um, read okay. Brian Green. Brian Green right. is fascinating. So, right. My, my point is that there's, there's so many people in California who oppose new housing because a developer will get money. Yeah. Find me a person who builds a house who is not a fucking developer. Yeah. You cannot. And if you think developer equals evil, and so I'm going to post housing that's built by a developer because then a developer might profit, or if even if it's a fucking nonprofit developer. I have friends who 
work for nonprofit developers. You know how much profit nonprofit developers make? None, because they're nonprofits. Non-profit. Anyway, yes, people make a salary, but they're like, it's not like these people are. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that nonprofit developers are getting all their stuff blocked because they are a developer. Mm-hmm. And it is insane. It is, and you know what? As people age from a 23-year-old who knows nothing about politics to a 40-year-old with a house Mm -hmm. who cares about their house prices, the line between the conspiratorial thinking 23-year-old left NIMBY and the I don't want those wrong people walking through my neighborhood right NIMBY Mm -hmm. gets blurred into unrecognizability. And the millennial generation, this generation of great activism is now aging. They're in their 30s. They're like... They're making a little money. They're getting a little assets. They're, and they realize that housing is the engine of wealth creation in this country. And that's an unfortunate thing. We should have done something yeah. like Singapore or Japan did, yeah, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible thing. It's, it's a dumb way. Proposition to, yeah. 13 turbocharges that in California. Yeah, we cannot make property taxes. The only reason we're doing the gross receipts tax is because Prop 13 yeah. means, makes it so that we can't tax property. Yeah. Guess what is a wealth tax? Property tax. That's a real wealth tax that is legal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's done at the local level. Yeah. And we should do it because land values get capitalized. And we know. can't do that in California we because of Prop 13. And we can't do it because yeah. of Prop 13. And it was something that was passed. It was a right-wing movement back yeah. in the 1980s, yeah. I think, in the late 1970s. 70s. Yeah. yeah, to basically say, and it was framed very much in terms of, oh, we got to help the poor you know, grandmother who can't pay for property taxes. But it's really benefited large corporations, most in, first and foremost. It's benefit um, and landowners, wealthier landowners, wealthier too, landowners, but, but yeah, large absolutely. corporations too. I know Disney, yeah. for example, is apparently one of the largest landowners in the state of California, and yeah. because Prop 13 doesn't even have a commercial property exemption, and it includes yeah. even if you're Disney and one of the largest corporations in the world, they can't increase your property taxes beyond the assessed level when you originally yeah, bought it. Disney, which is ridiculous. they fucked up Star Trek, they fucked up Star Wars, they <laughs> fucked, fucked up the up state California. of California. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a lot of truth to good. that. There's a lot of truth to that. Disney, you suck. Yeah, Disney does suck, and I just yeah. I don't think it's it's a weird thing because i think that mickey mouse came over as this poor irish immigrant right <laughs> yeah. and then he came over and worked in the factory and blah blah and now he's lording it over us yeah, no. he became the fat cat boss that used to but, chase him but you can understand why a lot of folks would be skeptical of, of things that companies like disney want to yes, do because you see examples like prop 13 right yes. you, you see examples like that and you say okay do i want to pass a law even a law that superficially seems like it could benefit me if it's going to benefit disney more and give them more political power. Right. And I would question that. All you know, the- if you've got these big developers and big corporations saying, yeah, let's deregulate the housing market. I mean, this is the same pitch that Clinton made in the 1990s. And, you know, I mean, I think there's legitimate critiques of that approach, of this, this idea that we can just deregulate our wealth to equity. Yes. The American, the American socialist movement is not a descendant of the communist movement. It is not a descendant of the labor movement. It is a descendant of the progressive movement, yeah. which was very concerned with clean government, good government, and low corruption. Hmm. This intellectual legacy, get, you know, they're much more the descendants of Bob LaFollette than Eugene Debs, hmm. even though they valorize Debs more. And um, I don't even know who that first person is. Bob, Bob LaFollette? LaFollette, fighting Bob. Don't know. Right, I know Eugene Debs, obviously. Yeah. No, Eugene Bob, Debs is like a everyone amazing Debs, historic. Right? labor yes. organizer Everyone. who ran for president and then was arrested and put in prison basically yeah. for advocating for workers yes and a time period where it was very dangerous I and mean, yes. we don't remember this but back in the early 20th century it was actually a scary thing yes. to organize for workers I like you could both. be killed they would murder you you absolutely would yeah and many were many were um eugene debs uh 
good guy, Baba Follett, also good guy, very different kind of guys. The progressives were good government crusaders. Mm-hmm. So this is what Bob LaFalla was. That's Bob LaFalla. He was a yeah. good governance yeah. crusader. Yes. Okay. And so it, he did a lot of things. He was like, he was also a crusader for like, you know, progressive taxation and, you know, things like helping immigrants and mm-hmm. things like that. Anyway, the, but the point is that the, the intellectual legacy of the modern socialist movement is very, very big on the idea of power and who holds it and mm-hmm. the idea of winning power within the Democratic Party, especially, hmm. uh, and within, you know, like Bernie people are absolutely obsessed with within demo, within intra intra democratic power fights with the factions they didn't like and they lost and lost and lost mm-hmm. they lost all those struggles their theory of change was wrong their theory of power is absolutely wrong bernie got you know bernie got stomped by like bernie got edged out by hillary clinton mm-hmm. and then he got you know who everyone hated i don't know any like <laughs> and then and then he got absolutely stomped by biden who at the time was a nobody yeah and then the bernie people all formulated this stab in the back theory where they they thought oh all the democrats got together in a back room and decided all back biden blah 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 someone still had to go out and cast those votes sure the you know party bosses we're not in a caucus system party bosses Mm -hmm. don't just get to decide who wins people have to march to the polls and and millions of people marched to the polls and said, Joe Biden, Biden. I want that guy, not yeah. Bernie. They could have voted for Bernie, and they did Didn't. not. And then it just bounces off these people yeah, because they only think about these conspiracies. They think about this back yeah. room, smoky back room full of Democratic fixers instead of the actual populism of middle-aged black people in South Carolina marching to the polls and saying, yeah. actually, I want Joe Biden because I think he will better represent my interest than Bernie Sanders, that bounces off they don't understand yeah. true populism they only understand this conspiratorial thinking about the backroom halls of power that they want access to and can't have access to and they think you know and that's why this associative thinking about developers mm-hmm. it's like oh i don't want a developer to build houses that means you don't want houses because mm-hmm. the people who build houses are called developers that is their name it is not built by habitat for fucking humanity mm-hmm. they are called every house is built by a developer yeah. So, and the houses that are built by Habitat for Humanity, I have some recent experience with this that I yes. won't go into in this podcast. Uh-huh. Not often the best. <laughs> Not often the best. And there's somewhere, some problems with the houses that are being built by Habitat for Humanity. There are Not somewhere in, on anybody who loves Habitat for Humanity. Continue right. doing your good work. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the houses are built by developers. Yeah, if you people, think I can't let any housing be built because then a developer might get more profits or power or money yeah. or success or just like, you know, blowjobs, I don't know, whatever you're afraid a developer is going to get, that all houses are built by developers. And if you conspiratorially think that the evil developers are behind all the blah, 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 you will not want any houses to be built. And guess where people live when you don't have houses built? They live in not houses. Mm -hmm. They are then unhoused. And that is what is happening en masse to our state. So here's here's the alternative that I hear most from the left that I'm sympathetic to, and that is the developer should be the government that we should move more towards a social housing model. This is part of Bernie's platform, part of Elizabeth Warren's platform. I've done a little bit of research into this, a medium dive into this, not a deep dive, but a medium dive into this. And it does seem like even the hyper-capital societies that have done a good job of maintaining housing costs, like Singapore, Singapore, have a massive amount of social and public housing. Public housing is not something that is just for the poor, it's kind of for everybody. With the idea being, sort of like medical care, that housing should be a human right and the government should be involved in providing it to folks who can't otherwise get housing on their own. So what do you say to that? That the developer I of say, choice should be the government? A, 
A, you are correct that the government should build housing. There you go. Good. B, the way that they will do that is they will contract it a to developer. a developer. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, my guess is most of the leftist NIMBY crowd would be more supportive if... There's some exceptions. Do you think? This, but... Do you think all the people who working, who building the apartment, the lovely, lovely, lovely HDB apartments in Singapore, which are the government-built mm -hmm. apartments that like everybody gets and blah blah blah, do you think those people are all, you know, like the postal service, like all mm -hmm. the bunch of government employees? Yes, there's some government employees. Yeah, no, they're not. There's private companies in Singapore that are contracting to the yeah, HDB. That, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I, I think that oh, the, the concern about the developers taking the, an unfair share of the surplus comes from the fact that the government is not directly involved, that all of the profits, like the government is, is owning it. I mean, there's still some profit from the construction itself, but then why are people I think upset there's about a deep distrust. Why are people upset about nonprofit developers? I, you know, I mean, honestly, I think it goes back to even I, one of the first studies I ever worked on. Do you know Mark Duggan at Stanford? No. Okay, so he's the head of CEPR, no. Stanford Institute of Economic Policy Research. He does a lot of admin stuff now. I know who he is. Yeah. He's a great guy. I, I don't know him personally. Amazing, like human being. I had him on the podcast. Just one of the best human beings I've ever met in my life. Uh -huh. And one of the reasons I became an economic econ 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 guy. Econ guy. But Mark did a study uh, 20 or so years ago about nonprofit hospitals versus for-profit hospitals and how they serve disadvantaged populations and found they often act very similarly. That... Oh, nonprofits, no, know you know, know the nonprofit that. industrial complex is is often motivated by maybe not profits per se because you know they have a non-distribution constraint; they don't have shareholders. But there's still the sense that they're trying to create as much wealth as possible, and and something about the system. And, and I think it's a deeper problem, not even of right. our legal system or our culture, that that there's this belief that our mission is served by generating more revenue. If we have a higher endowment, if we have more revenue, more staff members, then I become a cooler person. I'm you know motivated to do these things because my status in society rises. Right. And I think a lot of the nonprofits, especially the nonprofits that have the scale and size to be able to build large developments, have that same at least cultural problem and sometimes a legal problem too, where too much of the proceeds from the nonprofit's work goes to the stakeholders of the nonprofit and not to the community they're trying to serve. So I think that's part of the skepticism of nonprofits. Nonprofits that are genuinely grassroots, that have some sort of democratic accountability. Tell um, me why the, the government's gonna be better with this. Well, I mean, the, the government is is a democratic institution. There's things like Do you know the Ron Freedom of Information is? Act. Do you know that who requires... Ron Tudor is? Ron Tudor. Ron Tutor. Tutor. No, who's Ron Tudor? Ron Tudor is the guy who builds all the like trains and, and infrastructure huh. for California. Okay. Hasn't done the best job. No, <laughs> but he's made a lot of money. And guess who builds that infrastructure? Guess who, guess who pays for that infrastructure and orders it built? Probably the government. The government. Yeah. The, our democratically accountable government where everyone's yeah. a goddamn Democrat. So Ron Tudor overcharges by a huge amount relative uh -huh. to what an efficient developer would charge. It's sure. incredibly inefficient, yet keeps getting all the contracts. Yep. Okay. It, happens, it happens with Berkeley City street construction too. Yes. Yeah. And so, and so this is a massive too. problem in California. There is massive... Um, it's, it's basically monopoly. Yeah. It is all government finance. It's democratically accountable, blah, blah, blah. Come up with the solution to that. And if I sound conspiratorial, mm -hmm. it's only because I know the people who are actually making the money. I'm not saying there's some shadowy developers aligned with blah, blah, blah. It's that guy. guy. Yeah. He, he does a bad guy. job, makes the money and keeps getting the contracts because the contracting yeah. process is broken. And I can point to specific ways in which the contracting process is broken. You should talk to a guy named Elon Levy about this. He will talk your ear off about huh. this process. And we need to end this podcast because I need to go and Please. you need to go. Yeah, but I, uh, what I have to say is that the, the, the crusade for more public housing in mm -hmm. California for cheaper and better infrastructure for 
democratic accountability has to progress beyond vague, shadowy suspicions of whole classes of people mm -hmm. and has to, people have to get in the weeds, figure out who the bad actors are, who the good actors are, what the processes are by which democratic accountability can actually happen, get in the weeds and you've got to have Daryl Owens on your show. Yeah, this I agree with you 100%. Not the Daryl Owens part. I don't yeah, know no, you've got to have him. Is, but I agree with you about getting into the weeds. That the conspiratorial thinking is not helpful, that you should be able to point to specific facts, specific incentives to explain why the policy that you don't like, which otherwise seems like it's a reasonable policy, is going to be bad for our political system. Right. So we do have to go. Um, I, I've got to go hang out with somebody, and I'm sure you've got other things to do. But I want to end where we started on Ukraine, which is what does Ukraine tell us about the state of the American political system right now, in your view? Uh, what well, Ukraine tells us... Um, and I would say, not even the American political system, let's say the global, I don't global know. politics and global, global politics and economics. What do you think it's important for listeners to the, this podcast to know about what's happening in Ukraine, what it says about this global political system we're trying to develop? We are, we are part of a rotation away from unrest, which was in many ways justified. We've, we've just been through a period of unrest, the late 2010s all the way up through 2020 was a period of unrest in the world. You saw massive protests all over the world against very many, very different things, sometimes economic, sometimes yep. political, uh, sometimes nationalistic, sometimes about democracy. Um, sometimes about race. Sometimes about race. Absolutely. And, and ours were, you know, anti-police anti brutality, anti-racism protests were our big protests. Mm -hmm. And yet, in all of these, there was an idea that the people running the world are not the right people. And now, we're going to see a shakeout by nation, as we did in the 1930s. Hmm. What we saw then, we saw massive unrest during the 1920s, 19, late 1910s and 1920s. And then after that, in the 1930s, you saw some nations get really, really, really bad, and some nations fight against them who were also doing fairly bad things and who used that fight as, an, as a reason or who, who saw in that fight a reason to get slightly less bad hmm. than they were. And America is a country that was doing bad things and got less bad mm -hmm. as a result of our struggle in World War II. And Germany was an example of a country that went all in on very bad before seeing the, you know, experiencing the very negative consequences of that and, and, and trying to switch back toward good, which they, I think they've done. And so in, we're, we're in that period now where we're seeing the rubber hit the road. Instead of people tear gas and people you know, raising their fists in the street, the icons of the next years will be you know, like Zelensky running around with like a gun in, in, the, you know, in Kiev, in like a Kiev hospital or something like trying to, well, I guess he wouldn't take the gun to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, he took the gun in like the bunker, but then, uh, yeah. so then that, that's going to be the symbol or like, you know, Zelensky the, being the president of Ukraine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the dying pregnant mom, the, the mm -hmm. shelled shelters in Mariupol, these images, like the images of World War II became the defining images. They switched away from the images of unrest in the 20s. Yeah. Um, when you had white supremacist terrorists, but you also had like, you know, suffragettes bombing buildings in the UK, you had this massive unrest in the 20s. Mm -hmm. The suffragettes were not to be fucked with, by the way. They yeah. bombed they were badass. I know. They were yeah. utterly badasses. And Emily so you, Pankhurst is, is legendary. Yes. And scary too. Really scary woman in a lot of ways, but legendary yeah. and scary. Yes. She was a, one of the leading suffragists in the, yeah. the late 19th century in the United Kingdom. We're going to see more. We're going to see more 
nationalism and it's some of it's going to be really bad and some of it's not going to be so bad ukrainian nationalism which is mm-hmm. motivating people to resist these people trying to destroy their nation and subjugate them mm-hmm. is not a bad thing um yes it, yes it's bad for like the five neo-nazis in the corner mm-hmm. but it, for the most people it's just like this is our land get off our land yeah. um that's not a bad thing and i think we're going to see as a result greater solidarity in the united states a greater realization that we're all in this together that's Inf- good. Inflation will will set us. We've been set against each other, and inflation will continue to do that. And a lot of things will continue to do that. We have, as Americans, we have learned this lesson that our chief enemies in the world, the chief bad things in the world, are another group of Americans. Mm-hmm. That we are fundamentally at, at a civil war, even if we're not shooting each other. That has to go away. And this is the first. This this will not erase it. Will not suddenly unite the whole country against Putin like we did against Hitler. That's not going to happen overnight. But over the next ten years, we I I think and I hope I, maybe this is wishful thinking. I think that we are going to come back to the realization that we are all in this together, and that if you know some some poor person who doesn't have a house can't succeed, then Elon Musk also cannot succeed in any real fundamental sense. Yeah. That's a beautiful vision, and I hope that's where we go. The more pessimistic version of that is World War III, where our national solidarity and nationalism within the United States leads to conflict of Russia or China that ends in nuclear winter. So, well, you know what? Well, how, do you, how do we ensure that we stay on the path that you're painting, which is, I think, national solidarity that leads to peace and kindness towards everyone, including people outside of our country, frankly, rather than creating a tribal mentality that leads to a global conflict that kills us all? That's the thing that scares me about what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your picture of what's happening in Ukraine is kind of optimistic, honestly. It's like, it is. It's a scary moment, but it's also a good moment for the future of human civilization. And I kind of have the. It is a potentially good moment, is a potentially good moment if we, if we rally around the moral cause Mm -hmm. that it has been. That, that has become so obvious yeah. in Ukraine. And I've seen you do that on Twitter and your blog. Yeah. And, and I you, think your blog we'll, on Ukraine is really good when this, this all nice. first came out. It's like a, it's a very long blog, but it's, I read through the entire thing and it's very compelling. Yeah. I don't agree with it all, but it's very compelling. You should all read right. it. What's it called? The, the Ukraine blog post you wrote, the first one? A it's moment, like the moment of clarity. Of, the mo- a moment of clarity. Yeah, it's a great blog. Because, and it is, I, I think it is a moment of clarity. We're, I'm about to write a follow-up this afternoon yeah, on that. Yeah, good. And, um, I'll read it. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't about so how do we how do we ensure we stay on that World path three if it, and, and not you know. the path towards global conflict with China because I already see I mean there's elements of solidarity in Ukraine and the United States that seem very positive and you know Steve Fish just talked to me about this is the Cal professor about progressive patriotism like a form of patriotism that's really about inclusion of everybody yeah and about defending these values we yes. care about and then there's nationalism that's a little more dangerous which is about excluding yeah. and and yes. and and turning into caricatures people in Russia and China and. One of the best examples of the former progressive patriotism, I don't know if you saw this video Arnold Schwarzenegger put out. I did. It's, it's a beautiful video. He's oh so good. God. It's so good. I don't even like Schwarzenegger that much, but I just thought the last thought Republican the governor of California. Yeah, but because it, it starts by saying, I love the Russian people. You know, I, I say this as someone, my father fought Russians in World War II. He hated Russians. And yet Russians have been my heroes my entire life. And that is why I'm telling you, stop this war. Not because I hate you, because I love you. That's a version of solidarity I can get down with. The version I'm scared of is the version that starts caricaturing people who are Russian, that starts caricaturing people who are Chinese or Indian because they happen to be on the other side of this conflict and leads us down to the path to World War III. I think World War III may happen. I hope not, but it may happen. <laughs> but 
but not because of those characters. That's very nonchalant. <laughs> not because of those characters. Okay. Well, okay, look. You're going to die. I'm going to die. There's no afterlife. Yeah. All right, that's going to happen. That's a mean thing to say to all the people who are dreaming of the afterlife. Yeah, no, well, come on. This is why they call it the dismal science. You have I people know. like this guy coming on, crushing everyone's dreams. I know. It's fine. For the record, I support you if you believe in the afterlife. I also support you if you're like Noah and you don't believe in the afterlife. It's I, all okay. I believe the afterlife doesn't matter because you'd change so much, you'd be an unrecognizable person, and the five year old you doesn't get to go to the afterlife. So, fair enough. It doesn't really matter. But that's what I actually believe about the afterlife. But the point okay. is that um, World War III may happen. And if it does happen, I don't think it's going to be because of those characters. Okay. It's going to be because of decisions made by, you know, by elites, especially the elites in the other country. If, to be blunt, if World War II happens, it's because Putin throws a hissy fit over his loss in Ukraine and just decides to launch nukes at people. Nuke, yeah. At that point, it doesn't matter. At that point, it doesn't really matter if the United States even launches nukes back, which we will, but it doesn't yeah. even matter because like Putin's already launched the nukes and yeah, yeah. you and I will die. So yeah. and then... Other, other people will die. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then we will die. Mm -hmm. If Put, Putin has the power to kill you and me. Yeah. And I yeah, cannot Steve stop Fish that. Steve telling and, me there's <laughs> submarines in the Pacific Ocean right now right, that, that very easily kill. can streak San Francisco. Our, where we're sitting right now Absolutely. would be very plausibly a target for we will we will get our eyes boiled right out of, their, of our skulls yeah and it's not going to destroy all humanity yeah. but it will destroy it us. could if it causes cold winter you know but um but but the point is that you cannot let the existential fear of stuff that might kill us all yeah paralyze yeah. you into a life of inaction and you know just hiding under your bed crying yeah like Fair enough. you can't do that you can't just sit around thinking oh god climate change you know boo-hoo-hoo yeah, yeah. you've got to get out there and actually, actually make something, something better you know like yeah. that you're you're that is a metaphor for all of life because we're all mortal. We're all going to die. We're destined to die. Will be, even if we didn't die, we'd change our personality so much it'd be unrecognizable. Yeah. We are ephemeral creatures like flower petals that bloom and then wither. We, mm. You have to do something while you're here. You can't sit around you know, crying about the inevitable end of everything. Yeah. I think that's a great message to end with. Risk right. is part of life. The question is whether you do something about it. Yeah. So. There you go. Well, thank you so much for joining, Noam. It was a fun conversation, and I can't wait to, to, to hear about this or read this blog. So send it along to me after you publish it, okay? Will do. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Noah's got a lot of energy, and uh, as, a, as a fellow animal lover, I feel immense kinship with him, especially when it comes to bunnies, because bunnies are just awesome, aren't they? But as usual, I want to thank everyone involved in this podcast. Dean Worsikowski is actually sitting right next to me right now, helping us with the audio recording. Shalol Lafakis is not only our social media manager, but I think she's actually going to be editing this podcast for the first time. For Shout out to Shalol for helping out. Got a lot of other folks behind the scenes like Priya Sahani, Crystal Heath, Julie Waldrop who help out. And then of course there's Ronnie Rose, um, my buddy, uh, co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere and co-executive producer of this podcast. He's done so much for me. And to all of you enjoy it, this podcast and other podcasts like this, he's done something for you too. So big shout out to you, Ronnie. And lastly, shout out to all of you for listening and engaging in this pretty complex conversation because there's a lot to think about from conversations like the one we just had with noah but i think a lot to gain if we're willing to engage so if you enjoyed this podcast please rate it uh, on whatever podcast app you listen to podcasts on and as always share with a friend thanks so much i'll see you next time